And welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, back once again with my fellow 80s aficionado, Richie Von Sexington. How's things, Richie? All good, mate. All good. All good with you? Yeah, yeah. Not too bad at all. What's been happening? Yeah, changed job, watched a lot of old 80s wrestling and had the usual WrestleMania slump. Oh, nice one. I've, um... I think I've avoided the WrestleMania slump by buying a lot of retro action figures the last few weeks and just going crazy on my wrestling collection. I've noticed the uh, images on Twitter as your collection gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's out of control now. I've got a pool table full of wrestling figures after about three months of collecting. That's good going. Yeah, it's not too bad. But um, other than that, anything else been happening in your world? Yeah, I've developed a crippling Minecraft addiction, which I'm pretty certain I was never going to do. And besides that, that's been it. Rest, watching a bit of old wrestling and playing Minecraft. Nice one. Um, I've uh, got back into playing football the last couple of weeks, and third game in yesterday, I broke my duck, got off the mark with the first goal for my new team, so I'm quite happy with that. Oh, that's a good good one. Yeah, actually. Oh, I, I, I also had to deal with the uh, pain of Wednesday not getting promoted. <laughs> uh, the, so- the sooner this season ends and next season starts, I'll be happy after the fall apart that was Manchester City. Uh, Wednesday just didn't bother turning up for the playoffs, so I can't really complain. Actually, I think I was more, quite a lot more prouder yesterday. We played more proud. That's probably not correct English, but that's okay. Um, I scored first and we went one up, and then they got a soft penalty, one all. They got a second soft penalty, and I was ropeable. So I made sure as the guy ran up to take it, he noticed the referee, I pointed out that one of their attackers was stood in the D. They converted the penalty, he awarded the goal, and I said, now, you've, you're a referee. I think you know that needs to be retaken. And he believed me. He made them come back, retake it, and he missed. One all draw. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, you've, got, you've got to do what you can. I've got to help the team somehow. I'm not going to stop the penalty, but <laughs> but now good times. Sounds good. So everyone wants to know what we're here for, and we're actually here to take the first step in the trilogy that we'll complete with this step. It's Survivor Series 1987 up against Starcade 1987. So if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that I think episode three, I did the Royal Rumble versus Bunkhouse Stampede in uh, 1988, which was a bit of an atrocious night of wrestling. That was the second part. You and I went and did the third and final part of these three head-to-head battles, which was WrestleMania 4 and the first ever Clash of the Champions, which had some pretty solid wrestling. And this was where it all began, back in November 26, 1987. So what did you think about this in comparison to the other steps? It's 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 very different. I, uh, I certainly was pretty... found Starcade very interesting. Interesting is a good word for it. I um actually found it really tough to watch. No, it wasn't terrible, but I found it hard to get any rhythm going. And I think a big part of it was, um, which we'll talk about later in the show, the um, horrible overdubs with the music really killed me because I actually, it was about two matches in before I realized that they didn't just play one entrance song for both opponents. I actually thought that was the case because I don't have a reference for the 80s. I just thought that was what they did. It's really weird as well because it wasn't actually... I know the overdubs on the network aren't that good, but this is really bad. Yeah, it was right up there with some of the worst music um, swaps I've heard. As far as the two shows, uh, Survivor Series comes to us from the Richfield uh, Richfield Coliseum in Ohio, and... 
best estimates I can find on the buy rate is a 7.0, which equates to somewhere between 325 and 510,000. So the 80s are a little bit difficult to a little bit difficult to get the buy rates for, but that's pretty much the best estimate. Starcade on the exact same night drew what I believe to be a 3.0, and the estimates are even worse there. They're somewhere between 20 and 220,000. So um, Survivor Series certainly blew it out of the water. But for anyone that doesn't know why, essentially what happened here was um, JCP decided to run Starcade on Thanksgiving night, 1987. Vince McMahon decides he's going to run a Thanksgiving night pay-per-view, which as many of you will know what the Survivor Series began as, and ran directly opposite him. Now, the cable companies actually thought this was going to be brilliant because they didn't plan on running them opposite each other. They planned on running one after the other, doubling up the price, sort of a, you know, buy one, get one half price, buy one, get one free kind of combo offer, but Vince was having none of it. He actually refused to run earlier or later so that Starcade could get on the same night and he told the pay-per-view companies that if they ran Starcade they would not have access to WWF pay-per-views including WrestleMania 4 which if you think back to this period in time runs hot off the heels of the biggest wrestling pay-per-view of all time WrestleMania 3 which drew nearly 100,000 people or 80,000 people depending on who you believe in the Pontiac Silverdome so quite the power play there. Yeah it's uh, another example of Vince just proving his, his business acumen as opposed to kind of JCP almost being very traditional in what they were doing. I think they just thought we'll put this show on and no one will run against us. And of course, Vince McMahon went, hell no. And it, it, I think also you've got another problem in the fact that uh, they've just bought, as in USWA, so they're in the process of amalgamating another company into JCP. And They've, they've sort of like, I think that has an impact on this as we go on. I'll probably mention it later. Yeah, absolutely, which a lot of wrestling historians think was po- probably the um, the blow that put the Crockett's out of the wrestling game because, they, you know, many believe they probably could just pick the bones of the best talent and not put a significant investment into a company that was going under uh, due to the, I, I believe it was the oil collapse in the um, Mid-South area at the time. Yeah, I think it was. It certainly... Uh, they don't do a good job with it is probably the best way to put it without giving too many spoilers. I think I think there, there are echoes of the WWE, WCW evasion kind of booking. Absolutely. Um, as for the live attendance, I did mention Survivor Series came from the Richfield Coliseum. They packed the house with 21,300. Starcade came from the UIC Pavilion in Chicago. Their attendance was only 8,000. And moving the Starcade series out of the Carolinas was also a, a bit of a blow for NWA, WCW, because they lost a lot of loyal fans doing that. A lot of people felt that Starcade was a was a North Carolina tradition. So another problem they face there that they maybe didn't have to at this point. They seem to just want to create themselves problems as opposed to stick with what you know and then build on it. It's like, oh no, we'll, we'll just move it. And it doesn't, why, why move it from somewhere where there's absolute rabid fan base? Absolutely. So um, we're seeing what would lead to be the downfall here of the Crockett's ownership on NWA WCW, which would eventually lead to Ted Turner coming in and beginning a much bigger war, which we've already began chronicling in pretty decent detail. Um, which show did you watch first, Richie? I went for uh, Starcade. I thought you never quite know what you're going to get with these things. So let's start with the WCW slash NWA first. 
Okay, well, I went the other way, but I'm going to turn my notes and we're going to do Starcade first and have a little bit of a look at how that one's going down. Cool, let's do it. earlier Starcade's coming from Chicago uh, it's got the tagline Chi-Town Heat and it's got a very 80s television looking opening and commentary team for the night are Jerry uh, sorry Jerry Lawler JR and Tony Schiavone which was a cool combo to see back here what did you think about that I was actually quite happy about this because I wasn't sure who the uh, commentators were going to be but at least if you got Tony and, and JR you know you're on for a bit of a winner oh absolutely um, another thing with the first match here, um, we see someone coming down. I didn't catch what his name was, but he's a, I'm guessing an old time wrestler cause he's very decrepit. He looks a bit like Mr. Burns, who's going to be a special referee for the first match. Did you catch who that was or what that was all about? No, I completely missed that. It's not anyone I, I was... recognize. Uh, no, no, I, I don't remember referencing it. I, I don't even think I've got it written down in my notes. So as you can see, there wasn't a lot of um, storyline backdrop. This is before the era of video packages and whatnot. And the first match is a six-man contest featuring um, Michael P.S. Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, and Sting up against Larry Zbysko, Doug Gilbert, and oh, sorry, Eddie Gilbert, and Rick Steiner. Uh, pretty decent names here for the first contest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of these have not. I don't think I've actually seen wrestle, so it was actually quite interesting to see how this was going to go. Yeah. Especially with a young Sting as well. Mm. The heels get the jobber entrance, and we're told early on that the real storyline here is Sting and Rick Steiner had a little bit of a uh, coalition going with Eddie Gilbert, and Eddie Gilbert basically broke them up and aligned with Rick Steiner. I'm guessing turning Sting face in the process, but I obviously I've never watched any uh, NWA back this far, so you'll have to sort of maybe do a bit of research or take my word on that one. The heels get the jobber entrance already in the ring as the match goes to begin. And the faces come out to Bad Street, which was pretty cool. It is an awesome tune. I've yeah. got, to, got to say, you can see why the Freebirds were so big. Absolutely, this is—they don't really—they don't call them the Freebirds in this. So I'm not sure if this is sort of the beginning of the alliance or whatnot. But I think I, I believe they were together, um, or at least Hayes was earlier than this. But I'd have to check that one as well. Actually, um, we're told there's a 15 minute time limit, which always makes me oh, cringe a little bit in old NWA when the time limits uh, made a heavy focus before the match, but we'll see if that comes to fruition as we go. Rick Steiner actually jumps on Sting to start the match, and they, those two uh, go at it, which is really the feud of the matchup. Sting ducks a couple of clotheslines, and Rick Steiner ends up on the outside with no mats on the concrete floor, which is 
pretty, pretty brutal. And Sting comes straight out over the top with a plancher, um, but it looks like he missed it and hits the concrete floor himself. So a pretty brutal start to the match there. So what is uh, ECW before ECW start? Because they always go on about, we don't have any mats. Yeah, I probably wouldn't want to throw myself over the top rope for the first spot in the first match under that concrete, though, if it were me. No, I don't think Lance Storm would agree with you doing that either. No. Be, don't steal the show. <laughs> when we get back in the ring, Sting comes off with a missile drop kick, and pretty early on, all six men are in the ring, and the baby faces get the upper hand with the heels bailing to the outside. As they're walking around and stalling a little bit, I just notice how jacked is Rick Steiner at this point in time. He's like Little Papa Pump or something. He is huge. He's absolutely massive. I mean, if you look where his brother ends up, it's like he did it 10 years earlier. Yeah, he went sort of the other way. He got huge and then toned down to wrestle, and Steiner was an awesome wrestler who then just got jacked. Rick, St- uh, Scott Steiner, that is, sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, I think I'm on about 97, mid-97, I'm watching through the the Monday Night Wars, and the size Scott Steiner's at in 97 is ridiculous, even then. Yeah, in my mind, Scott Steiner just went from WrestleMania 9 to Big Papa, Big Papa Pump overnight one day in 97. Yeah, he just appears and he's like the size of, of a hangs. Yeah, he just like added 30 pounds of muscle between two episodes of Nitro. But I'm sure it was more gradual than that, but that's how my mind has it. No, I think that's it. He goes from being a, a, a pretty good wrestler, but reasonably toned to the size of, I don't know, three Hulk Hogan's, but losing any agility he once had. And becoming a lot scarier, if that was possible. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, he's he's a scary man. <laughs> when we come back here, Michael Hayes begins to work over the arm, and the faces make a lot of quick tags before Larry Zabisco gets in for the heels. Larry Zabisco does his usual shtick, which is which is a lot of stalling to Larry Sucks chance from the crowd. I was going to say the uh, thing out about Larry is he's rocking that I like beer, so I'm wearing big pants look. <laughs> In fact, there's a lot of it in this Starcade. Is uh, they're not they're not Vince wrestlers. They're like people who fight in bars who just happen to wrestle. There, every every person on this card has molded their physique after Arn Anderson, with the possible exception of Sting and Rick Steiner. Yeah, that's it. They know of the gym. They maybe go to the gym, but it gets in the way of their beer drinking. I kind of like it. Yeah, I think if you do biceps and go home and have steak, potatoes, and beer for dinner, maybe that's how you would end up looking big with this belly. Yeah, there's just no... uh, It's just... I don't know. They just look more real. They're like properly... It fits the show to a certain extent because the show's a bit... Not amateurish, but it feels rough. That's what I'm... I'm going for. Yeah. They look like they should be hanging around Roadhouse. They're a product of their time, a little bit like multicolored goalkeeper jerseys in the 90s. Ooh, now that's a trend that I'm not sure should ever come back. <laughs> when we come back, Garvin uh, gets in the ring, hits a couple of shoulder blocks on Zabisco before Hayes comes in, hits him with an elbow, and starts to moonwalk to light up the crowd a little bit. Eddie Gilbert comes in and gets beaten on by Hayes pretty quickly and then begins to ask for a timeout. Sting comes in um, and the commentators mention, as I said before, that Eddie Gilbert had broke up the alliance with Sting and Rick Steiner. Sting begins to work on the arm before Eddie Gilbert comes back with a slam and tags in Rick Steiner. Garvin comes in for the faces, gets a two count of a sunset flip and the outside commentator tells us that seven minutes have expired, again, piquing my interest a little bit as to where this is going. 
Gilbert comes back in and hits a backbreaker for a two count, but misses an elbow drop. Rick comes in and hits a huge power slam for a two count before going to a bear hug. Larry Zabisco comes in and puts on the abdominal stretch when we get the 10-minute warning. And the referee's distracted, allowing Eddie Gilbert to toss Sting over the top rope, which if you know your 1980s NWA is a disqualification, but the referee missed it. When Gilbert comes back in, he hits a suplex for a two count before Rick puts in a sleeper. And then we get the hot tag finally to Michael P.S. Hayes, who runs wild on all the heels. Hits a bulldog, but we get the foot on the ropes to break it up and a sleeper. Eddie Gilbert comes in and attacks him from behind as we have one minute left. Rick Steiner puts on a bear hug, then hits a lovely belly-to-belly suplex, but we get counted down and the match ends in a time limit draw, which I'm never a fan of, especially not in a six-man tag, which should be a bit more wild and chaotic. So this probably didn't set, set the best trend for the night for me. What did you think? No, I really enjoyed the match. Actually, it, it gave me that, ooh, this might be better than I think moment. But uh, the time limit draw was well done, but I think you need to start a match, start an event with a with a winner or loss to either the faces or the heels. You've got to go out and say, this is what it is. I mean, you've got people at this time going, do I watch Starcade? Do I watch Survivor Series? And they could be flicking around. You want to give them something that's like, wow. I think my big issue with it is always the foreshadowing. When I hear... And them say, this has a 15-minute time limit. I automatically, in this era, think, mm, draw. And then when I hear that first five minutes have elapsed, five minutes, I'm thinking, yep, draw. And I know it's going to be a 15-minute match without a winner. And I just lose interest sort of in the first couple of minutes. That, And I think one of, the first pay-per-view I ever watched was SummerSlam 88. And the first match on that card ended in a time limit draw. But there was no mention of the time limit until the bell rang. And that was like, oh, shit, what's happened here? Rather than, oh, this is going to be a time limit draw. I've got to watch it and take notes anyway. Um, just a, you know, it, it doesn't, I wish they just sort of keep it to themselves in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it telegraphs what's going to happen. Uh, and they don't tease it often enough and then not have it go to a time limit draw. I think... I think maybe they do it so later on they can use a time limit and make you think about it. But I just think, think sometimes you'd be better off not having the time limit draw after you've had a few matches that don't go to a time limit, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as you said, good match, but just spoiled by the ending for me because I, I couldn't invest in it because I knew what was coming. One thing that I will take from this, because I, I don't know a lot about him, is Michael PSA is irrelevant of everything that anyone's ever read about him and he's... Uh, opinions on various people was actually a lot better wrestler than I thought he would be. I was actually pretty impressed. I thought his punches were actually really good. Yeah, I thought he was probably the highlight of this match, if I'm being honest. I thought um, it's very early in Sting's NWA career, so he, he wasn't up to a whole lot. Garvin was okay, and the heels, none of them were too bad. But yeah, I thought um, Michael PSAs was the, was the bright spot of this match. Certainly the crowd thought so as well. Yeah, they were they were definitely popping for him. It's just I think he only ever gets spoken of as being like the the mouthpiece of the three birds. And I think actually they probably undersold him a little bit. I mean, looking at him now, he obviously still thinks he's a rock star. <laughs> did you watch the um, the table for three with him last week? I, yeah, I did. I, I really enjoyed it. But I just wish it wasn't like twenty minutes long. They could have took. They could have got two hours out of that. I think everybody said that, haven't they? I completely agree. It was brilliant. I just want to get one with Jim Cornette and Vince Russo at some point. I, I don't think Cornette will ever agree to do that. I don't know. I think he'd like the chance to 
you know, throw his dinner across Vince Russo and stab him with the fork. The, the, the odd thing is, I kind of agree with Cornette, but then every now and again, Russo will be on Stone Cold Steve Austin, and every now and again, I, I might have to hand my uh, internet wrestling fan <laughs> community badge back in, but sometimes he does say stuff I almost agree with, and then I feel dirty and need a shower. Oh, he's just, for me, he's just one of them people that was brilliant for a very short period of time and has lived off it ever since, and it drives me insane. I, I think he believes he was more influential than he was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, next match moving along is Barry Windham up against Dr. Death Steve Williams for Dr. Death's UWF uh, world title. I was pretty excited for this. They sort of sold the story that these two are quite friendly and get on well, and that this was going to be sort of a, a fair wrestling contest in a sense. And I thought that was um, a pretty decent sort of set up to the match here and it's for a title which I think one of my criticisms of this show is there's sort of too many titles floating around but by the the way this was treated it still did have a little bit of meaning so I'm um, no problem with that coming on the line here and this is uh, another instance or the probably the first instance I should say where I noticed that they both came out to the same theme music so that was where my sort of my thoughts lie with that but as we realize going on later on it's just the network overdubs unfortunately the thing is, though, they have music for Barry Windham. Why didn't they just send him out with Rappy's crap? <laughs> they go like this right here. One, two, one, two, three, four. That only got over so well because A, the audience they were with, and because B, Master P was not destined to be a wrestling baby face. No, 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 he wasn't. Um, Dr. Death here is jacked. We said Rick Steiner was big. Sorry, I, I did say he and Sting were the only two not on the Arn Anderson diet, but Dr. Death looks like he's not on that either. He is a big, big boy here with a scary hairdo mustache combo that I don't recall seeing on him either. I've got in my notes, the safest thing to say is that the doctor has hair. It's a hell of a haircut. <laughs> yeah. well, I say cut. It's just he's got hair, that's it. It's a hell of a growth. When we get started, Dr. Death starts us off with a hip toss and a press slam, which he does repetitions on, which is some incredible strength with a guy the size of Barry Windham. Barry Windham was, you know, slim here in his, in his younger days, not, certainly not as big as he got in the, the 90s, but he's still no small man, so that was very impressive. Yeah, he's got some strength. They go into some chain wrestling and they sort of, they come backwards and forwards with lockups and maneuvers and they end up on the outside whilst wrestling, which was pretty cool. I thought that was good. Um, they let go, break cleanly on the outside and both get back in without sort of trying to attack each other. And that actually draws some light boos from the crowd who wanted to see them just slug it out a bit. Yeah, I think the crowd wanted more blood. 
In fact, I think at some point it's almost like I think you can hear a boring chant, but I'm not I'm not entirely certain. They definitely got some heat for that, so I wouldn't be surprised. Barry Windham on the inside hits a really nice gut wrench suplex, and they do a lot of slow grappling, and this is where the crowd do get a little bit restless, so that's probably where you heard the boring chant. Barry Windham does a leapfrog over the Doctor. The Doctor then tries to do one back. Uh, yes, the Doctor does try and do one back, but he cops Barry Windham's head to the balls, which was an interesting but nasty-looking spot. It's one that's got a lot of risk involved. It's, it's, it's an odd choice. They're doing a wrestling match, so they go for a knacker shot. <laughs> um, Barry Windham refuses to jump on Dr. Death while he's hurt and this becomes r- the real story of the match the crowd are not pleased with him and he actually gives him plenty of time to recover it's a bit like if you watch the UFC and someone takes an accidental sh- you know, shot below the belt it's exactly what happens here they're trying to make it feel real I think that's, that's uh, a credit but I'm not sure sometimes it takes you out of the match because you're not used to seeing real in wrestling you're used to seeing people take ridiculous punishment and then get up three seconds later. Real fights are either quite boring or quite short, so they don't always yeah. translate the best for wrestling. Um, from there, Barry Windham comes back with a headlock takedown when we get going. Uh, he misses a crossbody, goes over the top rope to the floor and hits his face on a table at ringside. Then It's a, it, it's a far less extreme uh, bump over the top rope that you've ever seen, but it's pretty, pretty effective. Yeah, absolutely. And then he goes to get back in the ring, selling the injury, and Dr. Death does not allow him to come back in and get himself sorted. Rolls him up with the Oklahoma roll and gets a three count. Um, A really crap count by the referee as well. It was just slow and awkward. And it wasn't the best match considering who was involved, and the crowd were not impressed with this finish either. What did you think? It seemed like one of those matches that seemed a good idea. Champ versus champ, amateur versus amateur. You know, build it up almost. A bit like the... uh, angle Samoa Joe from TNA where you build them up as two champions and then it seems like the promoters went whoa there whoa well we've got we've got an idea and then they do this garbage finish and this gets rid of a title I think because I think they're amalgamating titles so Wyndham loses it on that which which title was it he had because I know they do the TV title unification later but I didn't actually catch what title Barry Wyndham was carrying walking into this one I missed it. I can Google it, but it's going to take me a few seconds of waffle. That's it. Was it like Mid-Atlantic title or Southern States or something like that? It's it's something like It's definitely something very uh, local. Oh, no. It's a singles match for the UWF Heavyweight Championship. Maybe it's just that. Maybe Steve Williams is the UWF Heavyweight Champion, and I think he's come in, hasn't he, from, uh, from USWA. Probably should have done a little bit more investigation. Windham, Windham. Now they're just going for the one title. It's the UWF heavyweight champion. I'm not going crazy then. That's okay. One thing I I was very disappointed with in this one is the commentators didn't sell the story. Like, we've gone for a storyline match, and Shivani and JR didn't seem to be in on that story because the story here was um, Dr. Death took a shot and Barry Windham allowed him time to recover. Barry Windham took a shot and Dr. Death took advantage and pinned him. And that was, you know, sort of a a heel tendency from Dr. Death in what was a straight-down-the-middle fair contest, and the commentators made absolutely no mention of that, leaving everyone to draw their own conclusions. I found that to be a bit of a waste, really. What did you think? Well, I think they could have built a storyline from it, but they didn't bother. I mean, you can tell all the way through the match that Jim Ross likes Dr. Death, but they should have they, sh- they could have used that to move on, f- on further. I don't know which, which wrestler is from which promotion, so maybe they were just trying to downplay get the title onto 
dog to death and then get rid of Wyndham. Yeah, well, I think Barry Wyndham does he, he does he go he goes into the Four Horsemen at some point coming up soon. I think he's had his WWF run already because he was there for WrestleMania one. So, um, bit of a you know a bit of a waste of both their talents if we're being honest there. I just thought that they, even if they didn't have enough time, they could have put on a better match. Even the wrestling stuff, I thought they were going to go for the traditional, right, we're going to wrestle, we're going to wrestle, we're going to wrestle. One of them loses their temper, hits the other one, and then you go into a brawl. But it never seemed to escalate or go anywhere. No, you're right. We go to our next contest, which is the Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express, which I was excited about until I realised what kind of match it was, and it's a scaffold match. Um... These are never good. I don't know what the fascination with these was because the wrestlers don't want to do it. The crowd don't get any action and there's just nothing to be gained here. No, it's, you can just tell that they can't work with what they've got. It's it's not like like the top of the hell in the cell. You've got whatever it is, 20 foot by 20 foot to, to work on. Even if, if you know, in Foley's case, it fell through, but you can do something. They're just on wood that's about what, three foot wide? It's just, they can't do anything. If they fall off it, they're dead. Yeah, they can't walk and brawl, and they can't do any wrestling moves. There's literally nothing they can do. They can't even bump properly, as you see going through this match. They just have to sell everything with a wobble and a very slow fall face forward. Yeah, yeah. And even falling off, they're not... They, I mean, I'm not saying they should come off the top. I'm not suggesting late 90s uh, New Jack is a good plan, <laughs> but... You, you know they're not going to do that because even if they land on the ring, that's that's. I mean, I don't want to uh, put a downer on it, but that's kind of the height that Owen went from. They're not, but they're not going to do that. So you kind of, you know, in, instinctively they're not going to come off there, which is kind of part of the charm of the match. You don't necessarily want to see it, but the idea it might happen is what creates the suspense. But you know it can't happen because it they can't land. It's not something they can do safely. Absolutely. Um, so we'll, we'll get into the, the play-by-play, but before we do, did you notice who the referee for this contest was? Uh, did I notice? No, I think I missed it. Earl Hebner. Ooh. Yeah, so I know Earl Hebner did work in the NWA, but it was still a bit of a shock to see him pop up here, so that, that was pretty cool. And out with the Midnight Express, as well as Jim Cornette, was Big Bubba Rogers, a.k.a. the Big Boss Man. So that was quite a cool face to pop up here as well. He'd be pretty shortly in the WWF. He's a big lad here, isn't he? Oh, he's huge. I mean, he was huge during his early days in the WWF as well, so it's not surprising. But, um, yeah, it's still cool to see him back here. He's very young looking in the face as well. Yeah, that, he's, he's managed to do that thing where growing a beard makes him look younger. <laughs> and as the, the guys go to get up the scaffold, Ricky Morton um, is on is waiting for Robert Gibson to get up, and Bubba attacks Morton inside the ring to allow the heels to two on one assault um, Gibson on top of the scaffold. Morton eventually gets a hold of Jim Cornette's racket and takes out Bubba, and then does quickly climb up and even up the story up high to a two v two, which really hurts the realism because if you've got two on one on top of a scaffold, really you should be knocking him off pretty quickly. Yeah, it's not difficult to throw someone into a swimming pool, let alone off scaffolding if you're two on one. <laughs> it's um, a pretty slow contest with not a lot going on. Robert Gibson gets up and ends up busted just from shots to the face. There is a tennis racket up there as well. Um, there's just punches and face busters ad nauseum from both teams. That's pretty much the only move you can do up there, a face buster. Racket shots as well. Before too long, uh, 
Bobby Eaton's busted open as well. Uh, Stan Lane uh, crawls under, holds on sort of from underneath it like some monkey bars and takes, you know, the best bump you can take in this match without killing yourself, as you alluded to earlier, leaving the faces up there two on one. And they double team Bobby Eaton, get him out and pick up the win. Bubba goes up to the top of the scaffold and challenges them, but uh, Ricky Morton gets the better of him, basically hits him with a low blow, and they scurry down and escape with the victory. So really not much of a match. Nothing happened. Pretty slow. It was very disappointing, this one, for me. Uh, when Rock and Rolls and Midnights is one of them sort of feuds you always hear about, but I've never really seen a lot of it. So a straight wrestling match would have been brilliant here, but that's not what we got. No, it seemed like you were taking people who didn't need a gimmick match and putting them in a gimmick match that, although the idea is interesting, it, I'm not convinced of the implementation. The uh, On a side note, uh, up until only a few years ago, it's sad to, for me to admit, but I actually used to get Jim Crockett and, uh, hold on, Jim Cornette mixed up. <laughs> so I actually thought Jim Cornette owned... Crockett, you know when you do something in your head and you don't realise you've got it mixed up? Yeah. And for year, years I was trying to work out, well, how did he go from having JCP to really Smoky Mountain? And then it was only probably in the past five years that I realised, oh, hold on, you're a bit of an idiot. <laughs> Fair enough. From there we go backstage and Bob Coddle is with Hayes and Garvin. A cut a very, very smiley sort of milk-drinking babyface promo. They challenged the winners of the upcoming Road Warriors four-horseman match. And Jimmy Garvin lets fly with something I didn't know until coming in to watch this show, and that's whether storyline or not, he is brothers with Ronnie Garvin um, and basically wishes him luck for the main event, main event against Ric Flair. This promo goes way too long and doesn't achieve a whole lot um, other than make Jimmy Garvin look pretty sappy. Yeah, I think that he thought he had 30 seconds and they went, no, you've got, you've got three minutes just as they started. Because <laughs> you can almost see him looking for the person counting him out. Oh, absolutely. He was Dr. deer in the headlights here, just right saying here the same thing over and over again. I'm so happy. I'm so pumped. I'm, I'm happy. Like, shut up. Get out. Next in comes Dr. Death, and this promo I will splice in. We're talking about the UWF World Heavyweight Champion, and my hat's off to Barry Wyndham. He gave me a fight, he gave me a heck of a wrestling match. He had his chance. He had his chance to capitalize on it. Just like the Sooners, they were the underdogs last week. They capitalized on it. They won, they dominated the game. As you people here witness Starcade, one of the biggest things in professional wrestling, the biggest, the biggest thing in professional wrestling, Starcade. You watched Dr. Death come out here and you watched him come from underneath to come above and then to the top. I'm going to go full speed. I'm 110 to 210%. I'm the wrestling machine of the year. As you people witness, Barry Windham did give me one of the toughest and the roughest wrestling matches I've had. Hey, Barry, I'm going to tell you something. You're a heck of a wrestler. And you know something? I'm proud. I'm very proud of this. I went down a lonesome highway. I went down a lonesome highway. A lot of things happened to me to get this belt. So all I got to tell all my friends here, I will go 210% to protect this belt because I am the wrestling machine of the world. Dr. Death, Steve Who William, basically what? tells us that he's going to go full speed ahead, 110 to 210%. Um, I don't think you can do that, Doctor. No, this is not how we do a promo. In many respects, please don't talk, Dr. Death. This <laughs> is twice you've done it to his name. <laughs> he's just really bad. Um, 
But, you know, we'll splice that one in, let everyone be, be their own judge and see what you think. How they thought that he would fit in the Attitude Era while well, Jim Ross did, I have no idea. Yeah, that feud with Steve Austin, hey, we um, we dodged a bullet there. Oof. From there, we go to our next contest, which is a unification match for the two television championships, the UWF and the NWA. And it's Terry Taylor with Eddie Gilbert up against Nikita Koloff. And basically here, the story is two belts one of them's walking out with both and there's going to be one belt from then on terry taylor of course is the uwf tv champion and nikita koloff is the nwa tv champion they start to lock up early and obviously nikita with the big size advantage gets the best of that um a lot of lockups a lot of stalling not a lot going on before terry taylor busts out a wrist lock and begins to work on the arm but nikita koloff with a show of strength reverses it and actually gets him in an arm lock to the apron and back in the ring with power. So that was pretty cool. Starts to work over the arm and power down Terry Taylor. Puts on a hammerlock, but not long enough to get on the dreaded hammerlock scale here on the show. Um, the last match probably could have got on there, but we've given it a pass for now. Before Taylor powders to the outside and goes for a chat with Eddie Gilbert to see what they can get going in a little bit of house show stalling. So... The action here is still pretty light at this point in the show, but thankfully with the two cage matches to come, it shouldn't last too much longer. When we get going again, Nikita's back on the arm, hits a backdrop for a two count, and Taylor again bails to the outside. When he comes back in, he gets a dirty pin with the feet on the ropes, but it only games in a two count. Nikita goes back to the hammerlock, and Taylor goes um, tries to get out of this wrestling some more before Nikita goes back onto the arm once again. Terry ducks the Russian sickle, which is a big clothesline that Nikita Koloff uses for a finish. Um, and then he get, does manage to get a hold of control on Nikita for a while. The crowd are really behind Nikita Koloff, despite the match not being the best so far. Taylor hits a snap mare and a knee drop, begins to work over the left arm. The commentators really sort of make a bit of a gaffe here where they talk about how he shouldn't be working over the left arm because it's the right one that does the Russian sickle. Well, that was probably not something that needed to be pointed out. What did you think about that? It seemed a really odd thing to point out in this match that they've... Uh... His arm, everyone, I mean, I don't know, I guess in the 80s, maybe they didn't know they always worked the left arm, so why point it out? Yeah, it just seems strange. Nikita comes back with a vertical suplex and then a 10 punch, a roll up for a two count, a backdrop, um, we get the 15 minute warning, then we get um, Eddie Gilbert chop blocks Nikita Koloff with a chair as as Terry Taylor's distracting the referee. Terry Taylor then locks in a figure four for what looks like it's going to be the end of the contest, but the big Russian powers out of it. Hits the, um, nails Eddie Gilbert off the apron, hits a Russian sickle, picks up the one, two, three, and unifies the titles. I thought well, it was a, an odd match. Again, it was another one I didn't think got started. It's, uh, they said they wouldn't bury the UWF, and they do. And it's just another invasion that could make money that they just seem to be chucking down the drains. Uh, it seems a bizarre choice for them, but that's, that's uh, the NWA in the 80s, I guess. Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. It sort of didn't have a lot of rhyme or reason to it, this one, with a lot of um, Nikita Koloff with a lot of slow offense, which you would normally see the heel early on in the matchup. Terry Taylor just sort of kept going to the outside and coming back in, which is is fair enough for the the heel stalling. But there was no real hot sequence from Nikita at any stage in the match. There was no opening, you know, power power display. It's just a lot of working over the arm before he lost control. It makes you you wonder if maybe they were... uh... The wrestlers that were the contracts had been bought. The only way they could kind of protest was in the ring. So maybe they just didn't try because they knew what was happening. Yeah, it's um, not the best contest here. The the, the re- I've probably said that after most matches, but 
it is what it is. And the next one is something that I was really looking forward to. So this one here is the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors. They are called both on the show here with Paul Ellering. Challenging for the Four Horsemen, uh, a.k.a. the Brain Busters for the WWF fans, Tully and Arn, uh, with J.J. Dillon for their NWA Tag Team Championship. So well, when I saw this was going to be on the show, I was very, very happy. Were you excited for this one? I love a bit of Arn. He, uh, he just always looks 45, and it's, it's just great. And I just think that uh, he really knows how to wrestle as a heel without getting over. He's just, there he is. And I also think Tully looks like someone who really missed out. And I think it's, uh, is it when they were trying to bring him in back and end up with Paul Romer? I think he failed the drug test and then that was it. Yeah, that's exactly right. He, um, when they gave the notice to Vince to go back to NWA WCW, Vince hit them with a drug test and suspended him for the last month or whatever because he'd violated the policy on cocaine. And then NWA used that failed uh, drug test and suspension as a way to get out of offering him the contract that offered him and just brought Arm back and put him back in the horseman. Not not the nicest move, Vince. No, uh, certainly not. (laughs) Although uh, it's got to be said... I've got to go back and try and find Arn and Tully in the WWF because they do, they would just seem to be so out of place at that time. Oh, I loved them. I thought their matches with the Rockers and the Hart Foundation were just absolute gold. I was just disappointed the run was so short. It's probably about a year, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's right around a year. So, um, no, there was really, really good stuff there. I think they had a... Um, a really good match with Demolition on a pay-per-view too, I want to say. Um, no, I thought their whole time there was brilliant. I thought I probably liked them more in that year than anything else I'd seen of them previously. So feel free if you're an old NWA WCW fan to jump on and disagree with me, but I love the Brain Busters in the WWF. Plus, if they're wrestling Demolition, I'm all over that. <laughs> um, Hawk and Arn Anderson start the contest, and Hawk is Jack Deer. I know... The LOD are all was big, but to me, Hawk was always this, the more slight of the two, and Animal was the big guy, but Hawk is fucking huge here. Oh, he's uh, been taking his vitamins. And we see an example of what that's done for him, because Arn Edison goes to the top early, a la Ric Flair, and Hawk catches him the same way you always catch Ric Flair, but he doesn't throw him. He walks across the ring and presses him several times, just like Dr. Death did earlier, and a mean feat of strength tosses him then. He's an absolute, well, I don't want to use, use a pun, but he's an absolute animal in this match. <laughs> After that, Arm bails, and when he comes back, Hawk works over the arm, leading the arm bailing again before tagging in Tully. Hawk hits him with a clothesline, and Tully bails to the outside. When they come back in, Animal's in there. And, well, actually, sorry, but to help him back in, Animal gets a hold of him on the outside and presses him back into through the ropes. Tully then gets up and bails to the outside again. When he comes back, Hawk to drop kick for a two count, and we get a really loud sort of pretty sustained roar from the crowd for the LOD, who of course are hometown boys here in Chicago. The crowd reaction for the LOD is fantastic. Road warrior pop, indeed. Animal comes in. I love. I say I love the. Uh, I think it's mostly to do with the fact that they sell nothing all the way through the match. Yeah, absolutely nothing. Animal comes in, catches Tully off the top as well, hits him with a press slam. Arn Anderson breaks up the pin at two before tagging back in. Animal hits a clothesline, and the four horsemen have hit absolutely no offense at all at about halfway through the match. They do manage to double team for a little bit, but Hawk fights them both off and hits them both with a double clothesline. Hawk then press slams Tully into Arn Anderson, 
um, in, sorry, not into Arn Anderson, into an animal bear hug, which was a bit of a weird double team move. I don't really see the purpose of wasting the energy, lifting him high above to drop him into a bear hug, but it was impressive looking. There's an inverted atomic drop and animal punches and a drop kick before Arn comes back into the match. Press slam by Hawk. Uh, sorry, we've been through there. I'm going to skip that part. We get a chair to the leg on the floor on one of the LOD, and Arn Anderson hits a DDT for a two count before an absolutely huge kick out by Hawk. Then they're both on Hawk for a little while, working over his knee. Tully Blanchard puts on the figure four, but Hawk powers out and hits the hot tagged Animal, who comes in with a big drop kick. The referee bumps, all four men come in the ring, and Animal dumps Arn Anderson over the top rope. And my notes from here say this exactly. Arn Anderson is dumped over the top. There's a dusty finish coming. We hit a doomsday device, but it won't count. There's a three count. It won't count. There's a huge pop. Don't be stupid. It won't count. Yep, the other ref comes in and takes it away. Fuck the NWA. Bullshit chance from the crowd. Dusty finish. Yeah, it's there's no need for it. I know he loves a dusty finish, hence the name, but right now they could have just... There's many ways of getting out of that. I mean, I don't think the uh, Road Warriors would be against getting clobbered with a chair. I mean, surely they'd sell it infinite chair shops. Or better yet, you're coming into Chicago, you're coming outside your home base, you're going head-to-head with Vince, who's already got strongholds all across the country. Give them the fucking belts. Give them what the crowd wants. Even, I mean, there's that theory of making the crowd wait to give them, uh, to get make more money, but there's a certain point where you just have to put the belt on them. There's been too many times wrestlers have been completely and utterly knackered by leaving the belts off them just a little bit too long. I mean, we're in the era where pay-per-views are nearly as rare as the Olympics. Take it back off them in a house show next week. Who gives a shit? But give the crowd what they want. Give the Warriors the belts. I mean, I guess the only issue could be that once the belts are on the Warriors, he's getting them back off again in a way that fits the Warriors. We don't lose. We don't sell. But, you know, there's ways and means. It's wrestling. It's not like... It's not rocket science. There's at least eight ways to get belts off people without failing, uh, having them having to be pinned. Oh, absolutely. And I, none of them can be as destructive as killing a town at Starcade. Like, oh, Jesus. I mean, just going back through my notes here. I mean, we've got the match. These are the finishes so far. A time limit draw, a awkward Oklahoma roll off a poor storyline match, two crappy falls off a scaffold trying not to kill yourself, and now a dusty finish. To, oh, sorry. Um... One Russian sickle, which was a good finish, I'll give you that. Um, and then a dusty finish denying the hometown crowd, the, cha- the hometown team, the championships in front of their hometown crowd. It's just, oh my God, it's awful, awful stuff here, the booking. I think it's very much, we might come into this more at the end, but it very much shows how Vince won. If you look at the decisions that kind of what seems to be almost petty NWA bookers would do or trying to be kind of old-fashioned. And I know they laugh at Vince, and we often say about Vince is is cleaning up of wrestling to a certain extent, but he knew how to make a business work, whereas these guys seem to still want to be paying people out of a briefcase and not wanting to modernise. And they get left behind. It's that old, you know, have the faces chase, have the faces chase, which is fine, but there becomes a moment when it's time for them to get the win. And the biggest show of the year in front of their hometown crowd is that moment. You don't need to think about it. It's definitely that moment. Yeah, you, your face has to win at some point in every media 
medium of media, a face has to win sooner or later, whether it's a film, TV program, comic book, even if it resets the next week or the next series or the next issue, they always get their win. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm so critical of modern wrestling for this now with the hot shotting and the ruining of the moments. Like this year, for example, WrestleMania, that should have been where Bailey won the title for the first time. And they gave it to her a month before and had her just retain it at WrestleMania, which was a complete waste. Um, I remember thinking the exact same thing when Eddie Guerrero won it from Brock Lesnar the month before Mania, but there were different circumstances then and there was going to be two title matches at WrestleMania. So I got that, but you know, giving it too too early is no more or less damaging than leaving it too late. And this is a classic example of leaving it too late and just screwing yourself in the process. Yeah, because it kind of ain't going to be as up for it. You're not going back to Chicago. You're going to be at a house show probably in Charlotte next week. So why why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. I think that that's your big show. You're going up against the competition. You've got to give a big pop. Road Warriors win. Job done. And then people think, oh, we missed that because we were watching the WWE. F. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just bad, bad booking. From here, we go backstage and it's Magnum TA being interviewed about the last two matches to come on the show. And he's backing Dusty Rhodes to take the US title off Lex Luger and Ronnie Garvin to retain the World Heavyweight title against Ric Flair. We then go to another promo with Nikita Koloff who's got both belts and he's looking very much like the Russian Mojo Rawley <laughs> trying to cut a promo. Um, I don't understand 80% of what he says. I do understand that he says that what's happened makes his heart feel good and then something about staying hyped. We then go to our last promo and it's JJ Dillon cutting a promo about the Dusty and Lex match, basically saying Lex has got it in the bag and he's going to win the match. And we start our penultimate contest the last two matches both taking place inside the steel cage it's lex luger defending his u.s title up against dusty Rhodes, who's never held the u.s title with the stipulation being i believe that if he loses dusty that is he's got to bow out of wrestling for 90 days at one point they say end of his career then they say he can't wrestle for 90 days it's not all that clear how long he's got to be out for but he does have to be out of wrestling for at least a period of time if he loses this match so assume he wants the Christmas off then if he lost. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Um, I was just wondering, uh, did they mention before this point where Dusty was wrestling? Because I'm not certain if the commentators made enough of it. No, they don't. I mean, there's no rundown of the show at all. Like, there's no opening video. There's no promo packages. They, the commentators do sort of chat about the night in between matches and before the event starts. But there's nothing really, is there, about what's to be excited about on this show. I mean, it's not full Michael Cole rundown and talking jury matches about the matches you're about to have, but they could could have made a little bit more of it. Even if they're going for this is a, a proper sport, there's still still hype yeah. in between like matches. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we get a really good pop that you can still make out over the the overdubbing of the music for Dusty Rhodes, which I thought was pretty impressive. Oh, Dusty's loved. You can't you can't hide that. No, not at all. When the match does get going, Dusty Rhodes starts off with his bionic elbows. The two take turns strutting, which was a little bit strange. I don't recall either really being a big strutter, but that's what happened. Dusty Rhodes hits his um, Dusty combo, followed by an atomic drop. And Dusty has the the blotch here at this stage as well, just to make mention of that. So anyone who's been watching wrestling for a long time will know what I'm talking about. This big, strange pink blotch on his abdomen that seemed to be there for about two or three years. So if you're wondering, it's definitely there here. 
Lex Luger fires back with a shoulder block before Dusty goes for the second time early doors in the match for the sleeper, but we're told it's the weaver lock, which they don't explain how it's different to a sleeper, but they do say that it's different in that you don't need to have them worn down for it to be effective. And if you get a hold of it, they're going out like a light. So they sold the move well, but they don't tell us how it's different to a sleeper. No, it seems to be missing a little bit of information there. It's almost like we've told you, that's it. Don't ask any more questions. <laughs> because we don't have an answer for it. Yeah, we haven't decided what the answer is yet, so we'll leave it ambiguous. <laughs> Lex misses an elbow before Dusty Rhodes goes working on the arm for quite a while, puts on a hammerlock, and then Dusty Rhodes is thrown into the cage by Lex, who's getting out of the situation. He rakes Dusty's face against the cage, and Dusty blades pretty early on here. He's thrown into the cage a couple more times before Dusty fires back with a drop kick, and Lex fires back with a backbreaker. He tries to put him in what's called at this point the human torture rack, but he can't seem to. He gets him up, but he can't hold him in place. Dusty ends up falling between the ropes and the cage, so Lex just sort of beats on him in between there before Dusty gets back in the ring and hulks up, hits his Dusty combo again, and a really bad-looking DDT for a two-count. J.J. Dillon nails Johnny Weaver, which I guess the Weaver lock is named after on the outside, who was holding the key to the cage. He steals the key, gets up on the stairs to unlock the door, and then drops the key before realizing, fuck, this is the finish, I've got to do something quick. Picks up the chair that he nailed Johnny Weaver with, and instead of getting through the door to hand it to Lex, throws it over the top, but Lex, in going to pick it up, is a little bit too slow, and Dusty manages to hit a DDT on Lex on the chair, and that's it for the three count. Dusty Rhodes, for the first time, is the US heavyweight champion. So what did you think about this one? Uh, it wasn't a bad match. I mean, given you've got uh, Dusty and Lex in there, you're not expecting a Matt Classic, but I think actually Dusty again proved that uh, you don't need to flip about to have a good wrestling match. I actually quite enjoyed this one, which I wasn't expecting. For me, so far on the show, this was the standout, the highlight. Uh, I thought the last match with the LOD and the Four Horsemen was decent, but the finish was obviously we've, we've been through. But this one had a decent match, a decent story, and a logical finish, which for this event was actually a huge step forward, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, not too long either. It didn't drag. They got through the typical cage spots you've got to get through, but they didn't make a meal of it with the stalling and the no-selling. They just got straight into it. I also thought that uh, Dylan's, oh no, I've dropped the key, I'll chuck the chair into the cage spot was particularly impressive because it can't be easy to throw those chairs over the top of a cage. Did you see the way it landed on the top and just very precariously tipped over and went in instead of tipping and coming yeah. back out? That was that was a stroke of luck or a bit of brilliance, depending on how you look at it. I was going to say, it made, it made it seem more impressive, but there's no way he aimed for that. He was just praying that chair went over. It came across as very spontaneous and very real, so I liked it. Well, again, I mean, this is the argument you have against this micro, the so-called micromanaging is that uh, that wouldn't happen now because they would make sure somehow that that door could be opened because that's what they wanted. Yeah. Whereas he had to think at his feet, and I think a lot of people now would just panic because they're not used to improvising, they're used to doing what's on the on the the sheet for the match. So I think that would go horribly wrong. It's like when you see people botch a move and they immediately go to do that move again as if, oh, I must do this move now. And it's like, no, no, wait, just do a little bit more and then go back to your move. But it's like that uh, where there's that gif of, isn't it, Randy Orton trying to give Jericho a RKO and Jericho just misses to go down. So Randy Orton just gets up and does it again. And it's like, well, 
that wouldn't work. That's completely out of the moment. Yeah, it ruins it, doesn't it? Um, I, no, I I enjoyed this. I thought it was good. I've absolutely no complaints whatsoever. <laughs> no, no, it was good. It was the only it was the only one that I uh, wasn't lamenting my decision to stop drinking for a bit. <laughs> Or a decision to go into 80s wrestling. We, we realise what we've gotten ourselves in for by this point. It was a brave move to decide to not drink and then put this up uh, pay-per-view and I'll give it that. Oh, absolutely. We then go to our final contest, the main event of the evening. Ronnie Garvin, the man with the hands of stone, defending his title up against former champion Nature Boy Ric Flair. And it's... A very peculiar sight seeing Ronnie Garvin walk out with a world heavyweight title strapped to his waist. Yeah, I, yeah, I, can't, I can't say I was, say I was looking forward to this. To this. <laughs> Early on, they exchange chops and, oh, they're, they're pretty vicious here with the chops. Flair will hit him with a knife edge and then Ronnie Garvin will just immediately fire back with sort of an overhand chop to the chest. Really, really brutal. I was, uh, I've just finished Brett's book and he hates those chops. Well, he hates most things, but he hates those chops. Four out of ten. Yeah, it doesn't do anything for him. It's that whole, I'm trying to do something that doesn't hurt someone else and now you want to chop me, which hurts. I don't understand the point. <laughs> yeah, and can you imagine having a real fight and throwing a chop? Yeah, as you say, you, know, you like look down and go, you just chopped me on my boob, great, and then you punch me in the face. Yeah, exactly. Like you wouldn't stand A you wouldn't stand there and take it. And B, if you were throwing that, you'd get knocked out in pretty short order. Yeah, I mean that that it smarts, but it's not it's not a knockout blow. I th- I think it reminds me of I think it's Mick Foley's book where he says when someone was talking about realism in wrestling and he says, Look, if it was real, would you ever see anyone reverse an Irish whip? Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> um we get a huge beal out of the corner by Garvin onto Flair, who obviously is bumping like a boss here in the 80s. And then the crowd unload with a vicious Garvin sucks chant. Oh, it's massive. Roman couldn't get, he could, would be happy to get this level of Garvin heat. Oh, it is absolutely huge. Um, Garvin works on, you know, punches and chops here on Flair. Flair does his flare flop out of the corner before being hit with a backdrop and having his arm worked over. Garvin goes to a 10 punch and another backdrop and then goes for the dreaded Garvin stomp. <laughs> if you're going to impersonate anyone, Randy Orton, it should definitely be this man. Oh, man. I, I have heard of the Garvin stomp, but for some reason I've never linked it up to what it was. And I, I was just like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> Oh, I mean, again, I, I, it just seems out of place in, in NWA. It's like sometimes I think I can accept things more in the shiny world of the shiny cartoon world of the WWF. <laughs> yeah, I think we have nostalgia plays a part there. Yeah, I think it's like if the People's Elbow was in 1986 in Charlotte, I don't think it would have been as big. But, you know, in the Attitude Era, People's Elbow makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that one. You probably think of a lot of things that would get booed out the building in this period of time. I don't think they'd be too fond of Duke the Dumpster Drozzy or Doink the Clown either. No, I also don't think the worm would have gone down too well. <laughs> Spot on. Uh, they exchange some really big blows from here, and um, Garvin obviously gets the best of it with his hands of stone before Flair comes back with a low blow, followed by an inverted atomic drop, and... 
I, at first, I think the production's really driving me nuts here because it seems to be that the camera's shaking really badly during this sequence. But then I realise it's actually the tape skipping, so VHS problems. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, not the digital age, this at all. No, not at all. It hurts my eyes, but it is what it is. We get a, a snap mare from Ric Flair, then he begins to work over the leg. A leg breaker and a figure four, which gets a huge pop. The crowd want a title change here in Chicago. Oh, without doubt. Even at this point, I'm not entirely certain who's face and who's heel because Ric Flair is the de facto face, even though I think he's probably a heel. Absolutely. We get a series of two counts with Garvin's shoulders on the mat. The referee turns to Flair at one point and very audibly says, he won't quit, which was got a little pop out of me. I, I like that. I, I think nowadays it's overdone the talking in the ring, but I do like that. Oh, absolutely. Eventually, Garvin reverses the hold and puts some pressure under Ric Flair, but he gets out of it pretty quick. Garvin sends Flair into the cage a couple of times, and he blades here as well for some blood. They both climb up, and Garvin sends Ric Flair down, and then comes off... Uh, sorry, Ric Flair goes up top after that, but as usual, gets caught and thrown. Garvin puts on a figure four and begins to work over Ric Flair's leg, goes up top and comes off with a crossbody for a two count, a backslide for a two count, and they both go up top again with Ric Flair ending up crutched on the top rope this time. Garvin goes for his top rope sunset flip, a move which he won the title with that I absolutely hate, and you've probably heard me spit about on this podcast before. Ric Flair blocks it, drops down for a two count. Garvin eventually does get him over as the referee kicks Flair's hands off the ropes. This gets Garvin a two count. Before the ref gets bumped, Garvin hits a KO punch and the referee seemingly springs back to life immediately, but it's still only a two count. Garvin charges Ric Flair, who picks him up sort of like in the heart attack position by his leg, sort of double leg, and then just falls backwards, sending Roddy Garvin's head into the pole that joins the two pieces of cage together. This knocks him out. Ric Flair gets the pin. One, two, three, and new champion to an absolutely humongous pop as Ric Flair takes the belt back. Yeah, the crowd definitely got what they wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Feel good ending, but not for the reasons you would think. Not the big babyface triumph, but rather the flopping babyface giving the belt back. Yeah, not even in like a, a definitive win. Just I'm going to bang your head into a post and then roll you up. Yeah, which I think for Ric Flair's heel run is probably one of the cleanest wins he ever got yeah yeah but no i mean i thought this match was okay but it was hard to get into with the crowd hating the babyface world champion a bit like today's main events where i watch a pay-per-view and stop it before the last match sometimes but overall not too bad the show itself was a little bit of a downer what were your thoughts on starcade overall it wasn't as good as i was hoping i thought there was a a lot of nothing and then the last three matches were okay, but they killed the uh, Road Warriors for me. I wasn't entirely looking forward to Dusty, but it turned out a lot better than it could be. And I had no idea who Ron Garvin was. So at least I kind of learned that he was rubbish and I never have to watch him again. <laughs> I just I just think that overall it felt quite cheap. It was very much a product of its time, wasn't it? This yeah, yeah. came across as 80s wrestling on the whole. Yeah, and it certainly, uh, you can tell that they don't believe in the, because uh, it was in the, when Vince was on, I think, the Stone Cold podcast, and he was like, what I used to do with the money, don't blame me about the, the territories going under, which is like, all right, Vince, you had a little bit to do with it, at least not a lot. But he's like, every penny I made, I invested in the product to make it better. And you can tell that every penny that they made when they did these things just went into somebody's pocket. They never 
realised they needed to invest money to make themselves competitive. Oh yeah, absolutely. For all the all the stick Vince gets for being well, completely hypocritical when it comes to wrestling wars against different companies. He is right in that he put money into the product and made it bigger and better than ever, while the old-timers had no intention of changing the status quo, and this is definitely what you see here at this period of time. They've, they've not got the uh, skills to do the product, and they're up against the WWE, put my teeth in, WWF. So there's going to be West wrestling fans the day after are going to go, did you watch Starcade? No, I watched WrestleMania. What happened? And everyone who watched Starcade is probably going to hear about not WrestleMania, Survivors, and probably going to go, nah, I've watched the wrong one. So the next time it happens, which uh, it probably does with Clash, they go, no, I'm going to watch the other show. Yeah, it's the Rumble and Bunkhouse Stampede next, and I think the Rumble... Um, well, the Rumble's on free TV, so it does yeah, crush yeah. it. But yeah, oh, you could see why. And you also, you, you're not trying to get hardcore fans to watch. Hardcore fans watch all the time. It's the problem they've got now. I always watch wrestling. What you need to do is get the people who kind of like wrestling, used to watch wrestling, don't know what wrestling is, but this looks interesting. And you're not going to get that casual fan base from that pay-per-view. You're going to get people yeah. going, this is wrestling, this is rubbish, this is why I don't watch it. Oh, absolutely. Excuse me. Oh, definitely. 100%. Well, that'll wrap us up for Starcade. Um, should we head over and have a look at whether the Survivor Series followed the same trend or whether it had a little bit more to offer? Yeah, let's, yeah, do, let's it. do it. Okie dokie. Survivor Series 1987, as we said earlier, comes from the Richfield Coliseum, and The Fink introduces us to the pay-per-view before we go to the commentary team of Jesse, The Body Ventura, and Gorilla Monsoon to a big pop uh, from me and from the live crowd. Yeah, perfect commentary team. We throw to an entrance video for the show, which is very, very 80s, before going back to the commentary team, who chat about the card and explain the rules, which is something we didn't we talked about not really getting from Starcade, so that was pretty good. Yeah, it, all, all together you've got a better feel. It feels substantial. It feels like it's an event. Yeah, absolutely. And then in another thing we didn't really see on Starcade, we throw to the Honky Tonk Man's uh, heel team here so they can run down a bit of a promo on their match coming up. So while we don't have video packages, we do have a brief introduction as to what's to come here with the sort of promos in between the matches. And all the heels natter on behind Honky while he cuts his promo. And it's really annoying. This is something they don't do in later years where they sort of try to sell everyone here is hyped up and jacked, but they talk over the promo a little bit. But thankfully, this doesn't last for too many shows in the Survivor Series format. Now, it seems a lot more focused as it goes on. The heels then enter the ring, um, Honky Tonk coming out last, obviously, before going to the face team for their promo, and it's just as bad. Um, I'll splice a couple of these in and let you have a listen, but it really is quite distracting. I think the Coke table is in full force for this one as well. <laughs> yeah, Tully's not the only one that could have been busted if I had their mind on it. 
Oh no, there's buckets of the stuff for these for the, for the faces only. I just I, I think the more I hear about this, the more I picture Vince sitting at Scarface's desk. Oh yeah, yeah, with the just passing it out. <laughs> Pay packet and your supplies. Enjoy, joy. <laughs> so the match itself consists of it's five on five Survivor Series here, early doors if you weren't sure as well. I know they flip between four and five man teams, but the early days were all five man. It's the Honky Tonk Man, Outlaw Ron Bass, Hercules, the former referee, Dangerous Danny Davis, and the King Harley Race up against the Macho Man, Ricky Steamboat, Jake the Snake Roberts, Brutus Beefcake, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Three awesome wrestlers and two complete waste of time. It's an interesting mix. It's odd to see Macho sort of like... In, in this match. I, I don't know what the, the uh, build-up was for it, so it might just be that uh, I think Macho was a bigger star in this time than he was. I think I'm pretty certain this is after the Honky Tonk Man had thrown Elizabeth to the ground. So I think that's a big part of the build-up here. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah, yeah. but um, it's very interesting and unusual to see Macho and Steamboat together after Macho had crushed his throat earlier in the year prior to their WrestleMania 3 matchup. Well, you only hold a grudge when you're on the different side of the heel babyface fence. Once you cross that fence, you forget what the other person did to you. And it's just dealt with with a shake of the hand. Unwritten rules of wrestling. That is definitely right up there in the top ten. All faces love each other. All heels work together. Um, Savage gets a monster pop during the entrances. And when we start, it's uh, the Beefer and Hercules in their first. Beefcake hits a snap mare and a shoulder block before going to the sleeper. He then hits a hip toss, and in come Dangerous Danny Davis and Ron Bass. Uh, Davis tags him. Beefcake hits him with a slam before bringing in Jake. And then the Macho Man. The faces do a lot of quick tags, so it's hard to keep up with, and some of the the play-by-play can be a little bit redundant here. Steamboat hits a nice top rope chop. Harley Race comes in and hits a shoulder breaker, followed by a lovely belly-to-belly for a two-count before incoming on the face side, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He unloads on race, and they go to an outside brawl, and if you've ever watched a Hacksaw Jim Duggan match in the 80s, you know what happens next. It's a double count out where nobody jobs. It was amazing. I don't even know how he's got power to dodge the uh, job at this point, but I was just like, there you are, the dozy sod's done it again. <laughs> Dopey Hacksaw gets himself counted out. Him and Bad News Brown, I swear to God, pins and submissions are irrelevant in their matches. But I don't, I don't, it's, Bad News Brown's kind of had a rep as being a, a tough wrestler when he was wrestling, if that makes sense. So kind of like he would give a, a loss to just beat the other person up. But Hacksaw just seems too stupid to realise they're counting him out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's good to get Hacksaw out early though. Um, and Race is sort of really getting up there in age at this point as well and can't do a lot. He was decent for the short period of time he was in, but if you saw any of his WWF singles run, it, it can be quite sore on the eyes. Yeah, it's definitely taken a toll on him, that diving headbutt. Mm. Next in comes Jake the Snake and Outlaw Ron Bass. Before Macho comes in, hits a backdrop, and then we get in... Uh, the beefer who hits a high knee for a three count, eliminating Outlaw Ron Bass. So that was a bit of a quick and decisive finish, one that I didn't see coming. Well, you've got to keep the beefer strong. Yeah, absolutely. And the high knee for the booty man. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I just, he's another one. You just, there's no need for him. He just permeates wrestling for nearly 15 years. Uh, how he's done it. They're just, hats off to them though. Imagine being that bad at your job and having a high paid position for this many years 
I mean, I guess they say life always gives you what you deserve. So, I mean, right now he's completely snorted the entire contents of his bank balance and now he's particularly not well off from his days wrestling, which he shouldn't be. Yeah, that's probably probably pretty accurate. Um, Hercules comes in next, uh, followed pretty closely by the Honky Tonk Man, who begins to work on the arm of Brutus. Herc comes back in, and then Honky Tonk Man comes in some more, still working over the arm, so the heels start to do some hot, uh, quick tags. Sorry. Beefcake hits an atomic drop, and Davis gets hit from the apron. Honky Tonk then comes in, though, and hits a shake, rattle, and roll on Beefcake for the three count, sending him out. So Beefcake and Duggan both gone. I'm happy with that. It's the uh, ideal situation for this match. Macho Man comes in, but the heels attack him pretty early and then start to tag in and out while working him over. Macho fights back on Honky with an elbow before tagging in Jake, who runs into a Honky Tonk Man knee. And Jesse Ventura kills me on commentary here when he says, what the Honky Tonk Man lacks in ability, he makes up for in luck. (laughs) That is way to put him over. It... I don't think he's got many friends in the back as old Honky Tonk, so I don't think uh, Jesse was too far from the truth there. No, that was a um, <laughs> that was definitely line of the night for me. Herc comes in and unloads with some punches for a two count before Beefcake comes. Uh, sorry, not Beefcake. Um, Danny Davis comes back in. Uh, he d- distracts the referee so the heels can work over Jake in the corner. Jake hits a comeback, though. Nails Davis with a short clothesline, which you'll know is the setup for the DDT, and then hits him with a DDT for the three count. Davis is eliminated. Gotta love the DDT. When it was an actual finishing move. Oh, brilliant, wasn't it? Hercules comes in and hits a big clothesline and a series of elbows for a two count. The heels begin to beat down Jake Roberts. Honky Tonk comes in with a snap mare for a two count, then a chin lock before Jake comes back with a knee lift and... Honky Tonk Man cuts him off before tagging so they can work him over some more. Jake comes back with a jawbreaker, though, and gets the hot tag to Steamboat. He hits approximately 100 chops on Honky here before hitting him with a slam, tagging in Macho Man, who ascends to the top for the top rope elbow. Um, sorry, and this is not on Honky Tonk Man. This is on Danny Davis. Gets rid of him for the three count, and Honky Tonk Man comes in, attacks the Macho Man before realizing he's three on one. Macho gets a tag to Steamboat. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon... Uh, uses all his favorites here at this point with Ben Out of Shape, Kisser, Breadbasket. He's just running through the list of gorillaisms, and it's really brilliant. I'm enjoying that big time. Jake comes back in, works over on with some punches before tagging Macho again, who comes off the second rope with an axe handle, a slam, and then off the top rope with an axe handle, an atomic drop, and at this point, Honky Tonk is getting sick of having the shit kicked out of him, so simply gets up and walks out, allowing Jake Roberts, the Macho Man, and Ricky Steamboat to be the survivors for their team. I I didn't think that the Honky Tonk would uh, take a pin. I pretty I was pretty certain he was going to dodge the job. Yeah, and that sort of storyline-wise here, you can sort of live with that, because he's a built up as three top contenders for his Intercontinental title. And Gorilla Monsoon, not Gorilla Monsoon, sorry, Jesse Ventura on commentary, really knocks it out of the park here, but saying, why would he stay in this match and risk injury when he still has to come back and defend his title? Yep, perfect. Makes complete sense. It makes him look like a heel, but still not just healing for healing's sake. Yep, absolutely. That was a good opener. Yeah, pretty good, wasn't it? And star power galore. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you compare that to the... I mean, the six people that start at Starcade, it's just night and day difference. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are guys... 
on both sides, really. Well, more the face side, but um, certainly a little bit on the heel side that you could see main eventing a lot of shows. I mean, Honky Tonk Man at this point had a lot of heat, and the Intercontinental title behind him, he certainly could main event some shows. But Macho Man, Steamboat, Jake Roberts, definitely all main eventers. And Harley Race on the heels as well, certainly on his way down, but has been a main eventer for a long time. Wrestling Federation heavyweight champ Hulk Hogan captaining his team against this team captained by Andre the Giant. A team consisting of the one-man gang, King Kong Bundy, the managers, the doctor of style, the slickster, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And to my right, ravishing Rick Rude, the natural Butch Reed, and of course, the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant. And Bobby, I know Andre, the entire team, very hopeful of tasting victory tonight. Tasting victory? This man tasted victory in WrestleMania 3 when he pinned Hulk Hogan's shoulders to the mat. One, two, three, and I'm going to guarantee you, like you thought and everybody thought, it's going to happen again. Right, perhaps we can get a comment from the eighth water of the world himself, Andre the Giant. Hogan, I did it once, and I will do it again. Main event, Hulk Hogan's team against Andre the Giants. Steve Slickster, your thoughts, please. Well, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is, brother. Tonight, these gentlemen are not going to behave as gentlemen. They're going to be a group of cruel, sadistic animals. You know, as they're eliminated one by one, and you're standing there, Hogan, and there's nobody left to help you, he's going to be there. You and him, Hogan. And then, then world champion, your 300-pound turkey, it's all over. All right, back. Hogan, I'm there for one reason, Hogan. I'm there for you, soul. And tonight, Hogan, I will be the survivor. You got it. You got we're back in the back with Andre's team cutting a promo, and we show the controversial three count that wasn't a three count from WrestleMania three, where Andre uh, fell on top of Hogan whilst Hogan attempting the body slam. And Andre is particularly scary in this promo here, um, cutting a promo up against Hogan's team for later in the show. He's legit scary in this. His character, I don't remember it being described as this heelish, but he's proper scary. Yep, absolutely. Um, during uh, this sort of cutting in and out between the promos and the next match, Jesse Ventura brings up for about the third time on the show the Running Man movie coming up, so very much putting in his own plugs during the show as well, which was kind of cool to think it's back around that time. I, I, I actually probably knew of Jesse Ventura as an actor before a wrestler. I ain't got time to bleed. Son of a bitch is dug in like an Alabama tick. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. Perfect line. <laughs> and then we go to our next matchup, which was definitely the sleeper of the show. That's the ladies' five-on-five Survivor Series match. Sherry Martell, the women's champion, with the Glamour Girls, uh, Judy Martin, and, oh, what was the other one's name, is it? Um, Judy Martin and Lilani Kai, is it? Yep, I think so. Although we do come across as sexist pigs by not remembering. Yes, we do. Um, it's only because I only appeared on one show. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find too many wrestling fans of this day and age that have got fond memories of Outlaw Ron Bass. Uh, yes, yes, I think there's probably maybe one in the entire world. <laughs> so it's Sherry, the Glamour Girls, Dawn Marie, but no, not that Dawn Marie, and Donna Cristinello. 
and they are taking on the face team of Velvet McIntyre, Rock and Robin, the Fabulous Mauler, and the Jumping Bomb Angels. I've got to admit, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to this because I had no context of uh, of, of women's wrestling in the eighties. So I kind of probably went in not expecting a lot. I do remember this show, and I do remember the Jumping Bomb Angels, and also having listened to the OSW review on this as well, I wasn't shocked at this, but it, it wasn't still nice to go back and watch how cool the Bomb Angels were. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's def- like you say, it's definitely the sleeper. The women's revolution didn't start when Stephanie McMahon said so. <laughs> to start off, Sherry attacks Velvet McIntyre, hits her early with a clothesline, before Velvet comes back with a crossbody for a one count. Muller comes in and hits a pair of snapmares, and Jesse says um, he heard. Um, he says, <laughs> "Sorry, Jesse says to Gorilla that he heard you and Mula were sweethearts back in '36, which was a great line." Oh, he, he loves to rib Gorilla. Um, my favourite Jesse ribbing, which we'll get to later in the show as well, is when he just rips the piss out of um, referee Joey Morella, um, who not in the storyline but in real life is Gorilla's son. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... It's genius. It's just that bit of kayfabe that they used to keep, so you don't entirely, uh, you don't necessarily know that. There's a lot of tags early and a lot of quick uh, pinfall attempts. Too much to keep up with. Velvet McIntyre comes in with a back elbow and a front drop kick for a two count before hitting up a, a roll up and getting rid of Donna Cristinello nice and early, who was appearing to be fairly advanced in age here. So probably a good thing that she was the first one out the door. Yeah, yeah. I, I think these matches do work better with a with a quick elimination. I mean, it's not great for the person who gets eliminated, possibly, but I think it, it just gets you ready for that. Anybody can go at any time. Absolutely. Rock and Robin comes in, and so does Dawn Marie, who beats up her up for a few seconds. We get one of the Glamour girls in before Sherry comes in and hits a drop kick. Rock and Robin's sort of eating a lot of moves from the heels here at this point before firing back with a clothesline and a crossbody for a three count, getting rid of Dawn Marie, making it the the face team five up against the heel teams three. I always think that's that's an odd way of doing it. I always think that the the, the faces should be in peril, but I guess there's only so many ways you can book these matches. Well, this is probably why I've got fonder memories of this. Well, this and ch- uh, what I watched as a child. But I always think the Survivor Series matches offer more options than the War Games match because of the way it's designed. It can really only be the heels get the advantage of faces come back because the other way around it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless you had an absolute monster heel in to start with and two small baby faces, I could see it working. But long term over the match, still not so much. Anyway. Going back to 87, one of the Jumping Bomb Angels come in, and I do apologize for not knowing the the, the difference between the two of them. Um, they've only appeared on one show, and it's been a long time since I watched this. But they do a really cool bridge underneath of a pin attempt, which gets us off to a good start with them, seeing some of their cool moveset. Jesse Ventura is very impressed, as they also hit a high knee for a two count, and the crowd begin to pop and get into this as well. The other Bomb Angel comes in and hits a top rope arm drag, running up and sending her off, so that was really cool as well. And a double underhook on Sherry for a two count. Rock and Robin comes back in and hits a monkey flip on the Lani Kai. Uh, so obviously my notes later on did find out who the second glamour girl was. Um, who pops right up, not selling at all. Um, this gets a mention in the dick move of the week for me, just to take moves and immediately get up and walk away. Tagging in Sherry, who comes in and hits a suplex for a three count, eliminating Rock and Robin, which I was a bit surprised at. Yeah, I thought she'd be in a bit longer than that, given the uh, what the impact you've had on the match so far. 
Absolutely. Um, and I do eventually get the commentators giving me some information on which Bomb Angel is which, and it's Azuki that comes in for a drop kick for a two count. Uh, and we've got Judy Martin then gets up and throws her by a hair. We get Velvet McIntyre in, who hits a slingshot on the Lani Kai. Moolah comes in and hits a drop kick. Uh, Judy Martin comes back in with a back elbow and does. Sherry then comes in and hits a face slam for a one count. Moolah and um, Martin come back in. And we get a sucker clothesline for a three count, sending Moolah out of the match as well. So, again, a bit of a shock that Moolah's gone. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting Moolah just from name alone to be uh, out fourth. I thought, I thought she'd be in for a lot longer than that. She's another one that's definitely advancing in age here, though. Her and Harley Race are of the same era. Yeah, it's, it's mental to think that she's put through a table like 10 years after this. In fact, it's probably more 12. Actually, I think I might have even just insulted Harley Race by <laughs> stating that Moolah was of the same ilk. She's probably quite a bit older than Race as well. I think Moolah was 50s, I think, but I'm not sure, certain. De- delving into Moolah's history takes you to some murky, murky waters. Oh, absolutely. Very, very carny stuff. If you, if, I think I, I yeah. did read Moolah's book at one point. It's, um, women's wrestling was even more carny than the men's. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not doesn't uh, fix with the uh, way that the WWE still portray it. Let's put it that way. No. The Bomb Angels then begin to work on the leg of Judy Martin. Velvet McIntyre comes in and unleads with a Boston Crab, followed by a surfboard and a drop kick. Sherry comes in and hits a big leg drop a la Hulk Hogan, followed by a gut wrench. Um, but she actually drops the Bomb Angel on her head, which was really nasty. Um, Lani Kai comes in with a double underhook pin for a two count. The bell rings, but the referee says no, that wasn't a three, so a little bit of a botch there. Then Sherry gets caught in a victory roll by Velvet McIntyre for a three count, and Sherry, the women's champions, eliminated. So another shocking elimination here. Yeah, I, I got I've got the feeling at this point that they were trying to try a few things, like try and use the Survivor Series to gauge the crowd on uh, on the Bomb Angels and other people. Just you know, it was a bit of a bit of a tryout because at the end of the day, it was a pay per view designed to just go up against Starcade, so they could throw some stuff about, see what stuck. Yeah, and I think they probably worked the story of this match to be about the tag team women rather than the, the the singles. And, of course, I didn't mention at the start, but the Glamour Girls do hold the very prestigious Ladies Tag Team Championship from the WWF, which obviously didn't stick around too long. I don't think I've ever heard of it. So it's it, it, I bet it's there for, like, a cup of coffee. If that... Cup of coffee in the big time. Oh, yeah. Cup of coffee in the big time, yeah. Cup of coffee, man, yeah. Cup of coffee in the big time, yeah. Wow, man, freak out! <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> um, I can't keep up with the action here, and the note writing gets pretty quick because the Bomb Angels come in, and it becomes the Bomb Angels and the Glamour Girls pretty quickly. Um, we get the Glamour Girls not selling, but the Bomb Angels keep throwing cool offense. Then we get Velvet McIntyre comes in with a victory roll. And gets hit with an electric chair for a three count, sending her out. Um, both tag teams are still left in here. And the Bombs hit a double slam. Lalani Kai misses a top rope splash. The Bombs hit a top cross body block for a three count, sending out Lalani Kai. And then a slam and a flying knee drop double team, followed by a double backdrop. A drop kick onto Jimmy Hart, sending him off the apron. And a clothesline for a three count on Judy Martin. And the Bomb Angels pick up the win, so... Very, very cool stuff here. The Jumping Bomb Angels look like they were primed for a, a big WWF career, but obviously that didn't happen. But on this night, they were very impressive. Oh, I thought this match was amazing, especially given like I wasn't expecting 
much from it. But uh, to be honest, they could go back and learn stuff. Now, I know the, the women's revolution is big, but I think they could go back and learn some things about uh, the way to stage a match and do do things to keep things interesting. They were all very different, wrestled different, but it was still captivating. I don't think I got bored. It was 20 minutes worth of wrestling. It wasn't boring, which is always good. Yeah, absolutely. No, this, this was really, really good. I was quite happy with this. We then go to a heel team promo for the big tag team match coming up. So this was a sight to see. But before we get to the match, it's basically, it's the Islanders, Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine, a.k.a. the Dream Team, the Hart Foundation, and Demolition back being interviewed. But they do have a fifth team not with them in the backstage, and that's the Bolsheviks, because they're in the ring to sing the Russian national anthem. Of course. Beautiful heat. Heat is the word. I've got heat with an exclamation mark here right after that. Did you catch Jesse Ventura standing for the anthem and Gorilla Monsoon just giving him hell for it? Yeah, yeah, I did see that. I'm not sure Jesse would do that now, but... uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Too shame. I mean, uh, he's all for it. He's just... You can see why he invented the heel commentator, the heel colour commentator. He's just... He, he probably is still one of the best at it. Oh, absolutely. It's the it's very much the template, isn't it? Yeah, but he doesn't go he doesn't go night the two thousand seventeen JBL where he's a heel, but he's he he's just feels like he's spitting rhetoric from Vince McMahon. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I just I found this. I, I always enjoyed this part. This part of the shtick with the the heels. I liked it when the Sheik and um and Volkov did it themselves as well. So very cool. Yeah. I, I, just classic eighties stuff here, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it's stuff they could still use. I don't. It's not that they they couldn't use things like this. It, it, it all works. Oh, absolutely. It's just good stuff. Um, from there, we get a face promo, which is not quite as good here. It's Strike Force. The British Bulldogs, the Young Stallions, the Fabulous Rougeos, and the Killer Bees. And it's very typical generic babyface stuff here. I believe the cocaine table at this point may work like the pizza all you can get. <laughs> you just you turn up, get a bit of salad, and then a big scoop of coke. Is there anything weirder than a smiling babyface Rick Martel for a fan of uh, sort of old-school WWF? Well, there's that, and there's also, uh, like I said, I read Brett's book, even trying to take Dynamite Kid as a baby face, smiling face, is, is particularly difficult. He doesn't look like he should be a, a face. It doesn't work. No, absolutely not. Um, and I was looking out as well, for anyone that sort of, you know, has done a lot of history on this era of wrestling will know of the feud between the Fabulous Rougeos and the British Bulldogs, particularly Dynamite Kid, but there was no real evidence in this match of that going on. Nothing you could... I, I, could see even looking out for it for anyone that doesn't know that story i definitely suggest going and do a bit of reading brett's book's probably the best place to read it but essentially the rougeos got ribbed by the british bulldogs and had enough and dynamite kid being the bully that he was eventually the rougeos got a hold of him and beat him down with i believe a sack of coins and knocked out all his teeth and vince got them together and made them sort of kiss and make up and pay for his teeth to be replaced but pretty nasty sounding feud by the sound of it yeah, he, he doesn't sound a nice piece of work, but I don't think I'm saying anything that, that isn't already out there. No, no, definitely not. So from there we go into the um, the five-team versus five-team match, which, think about it, is 10 guys in the one Survivor Series match. So there'll be two in the ring and 16 guys, sorry, 
18 guys. <laughs> Fucking hell, cut my maths out of that. There'll be 18 guys on the apron during this. That's just crazy. It's, there actually isn't enough space on the ring almost for them to tag in. You know, they're almost at the other side of the, the other post. And they can't tag in in the corner. And it allows the classic staple of Gorilla Monsoon commentary telling us that he hopes the ring has been reinforced. Yeah, because there's, there's many tons of humanity. <laughs> we get Rick Martel starting off with Nikolai Volkov. Volkov lifts him up in a chokehold and hits a slam before bringing in Boris. Uh, Rick Martel comes back with a drop kick and a backdrop before tagging in partner Tito Santana, who comes in, hits the fly- flying jalapeno, the big flying forearm for the three count, and eliminates um, Boris Zukov, which in turn eliminates Nikolai Volkov, because in this matchup, if you go, your partner goes with you, and we get the quick elimination with the Russians leaving the match early. Good start. I, I like that because, again, seeing that many bodies could make you almost not want to go through watching it all, but you get one gun, you're like, right, they're going to eliminate people. We're not going to have to sit and just watch 10 minutes of nothing happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we get then Axe comes in and begins to beat down on on Tito. And we get Dino Bravo coming in next. Uh, the, one of the Killer Bees comes in as well before Davey Boy Smith comes in, followed by Smash and Tito and the Dynamite Kid and Haku. As you can tell, it's just in, out, in, out, in, out, and not a lot going on as far as action, but a lot of tags to keep it from getting too boring. Um, we get in, Roma comes in and works on the leg of the anvil before Nightheart comes back with a slam, before tagging in Smash, who also hits a slam. Axe comes in, followed by Haku. We get some clotheslines, and Tama comes in. Before we settle on Paul Roma and Axe in the match, with just probably too many quick tags at this point, Axe begins unloading on everybody, and then we get a missed cross body block, allowing Axe to pick up the the one two three. Um, who was that by? Ah, uh, by Ray Rougeau. Sorry, misses a cross body block, allowing Axe to get pick up the one two three, eliminating the fabulous Rougeaus and bringing us back to four teams apiece. Fantastic piece of tagging in, tagging out. I mean, it does go on a bit too long, and you just want them to settle and do something more than punch, kick, tag, hammerlock. <laughs> but it, it's they've got to go some time. So I mean, it's it's an, it's a reasonably slow build. It's just you kind of hope they keep going that way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some good stuff here though. Um, Powers comes in. Jim Powers from the Young Stallions begins to work over Tama before Anvil comes in and goes onto the shoulder. Haku comes in and nails him off the top rope for a two count. Roma comes in as does Axe, and I just love Demolition. They begin to do their classic. Uh, offense of just the pounding away, knocking people into the canvas. You can't beat it. I look, I'm an old, I'm a new demolition fan, and I love them. They're <laughs> awesome. Yeah, favorites of mine. Valentine comes in and hits a shoulder breaker for a two count, a suplex for a two count before tagging in Dino Bravo, and then we get a suplex and a leg drop for a two count from Dino. Smash and the Dynamite Kid come in, and we get a big clothesline by Smash for a two count before Smash pushes the referee, picking up the cheap disqualification to a lot of boos, sending Demolition out of the match. I wasn't sure if Demolition was known for doing this, otherwise it seemed a bit out of place. Yeah, it was a bit bit odd. Not the best way to get rid of them, but it's the typical 80s fair of a lot of guys just can't be pinned at this time. Brett yeah, comes- it's a shame. I would say it's a shame, but yeah, they have to do it that way. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Brett comes in and hits a pile driver for a two count. Jim Powers comes in and Haku comes in and unloads on a, with a big clothesline on him, a slam, but misses a splash. Rick Martel comes in and hits a backdrop and does the, the babyface dance. You see when a babyface is firing up, the, the legs are going, the fists are pumping. It's pretty funny to me. See, I just, to me, Martel will always be the model. Yeah, it's weird seeing him as a babyface. He's just, he's, he's Rick the Martel. He's Martel. He's not a, he's not a babyface. Not at all. He doesn't even look like a babyface when he's playing a babyface. <laughs> he's just got that face you love to hate. Yep. Uh, he hits a drop kick and then puts on the Boston Crab, his finishing move. But the Anvil gets a blind tag, comes in and clotheslines him for a two count. D- Tito comes in and hits a flying forearm, but Bret Hart makes a save. Um, elbows Tito on the back of the head, allowing Anvil to pin him for a three count. And another thing you see a lot of in Survivor Series matches, just moves that aren't finishes, getting victories over people. It's not something, that's probably one of the, the few aspects of these matches I didn't like, but it did allow one of the best teams of the day, the Hart Foundation, to get a pin over the champions, the uh, strike force. And even so, even more so as heels, because they didn't do it sort of like after Hart fought match it's just like right pinfall attempt break it up something pin they've got like a bit of heel nastiness there because they can then go on and claim oh well we pinned you oh uh, absolutely strike force like no 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 you didn't it was cheating yeah very cheap cheap fall but good for the hearts definitely and it's odd to see bret hart kind of not high up the, the sky up the card if that makes sense yeah absolutely and this was Definitely the stage where the Anvil was still the biggest star of the team. Yeah, he's a bit, he's a, he's a, actually, it's a shame. I think he could have gone further, but I think, again, from Hot, Brett Hart's book, he's, he's a bit of a crazy bastard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see him on Total Divas, he's probably still got a little bit of that going to this day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Haku comes in and hits a drop kick on Powers for a two count, then a super kick and a backbreaker for a two count. Greg Valentine comes in and hits an elbow for a two count before Powers comes back with a suplex. Bret Hart comes in and hits a backbreaker. Tama comes in and hits an elbow. Then Bret comes back with a suplex for a two count. Powers gets out, tagging in Roma, and the anvil comes in against him. But he's not in there for long. Greg Valentine comes in with a slam and then a chop off the top rope for a two count. Dynamite Kid and Bret Hart get in, and this certainly grabs my attention for a minute. The Kid... uh, hits a nice back suplex before they both get out too early for it to really count for much. And David Boy Smith and Haku come in. Jim Powers is in there again soon, as is Davey Boy and Bret Hart, which is also cool to see, considering where they'd end up in a few years' time. Davey press slams him for a two count before Haku comes in and is hit with Davey Boy's running slam, which only garners a two count, which was a little bit shocking to me. Yeah, I was expecting that to be the end of that, uh, that little sequence. Definitely. Um, we get a suplex and diving headbutt from Dynamite Kid, but Dynamite Kid sells his own head because he's headbutted Haku, which is never a good move. No, uh, they like to play on that uh, trope quite a bit. It's a, it's a little shocking to see in 2017, but, you know, times are different. Yes, um, the darker your skin, the harder your head back in the 80s in wrestling. Yeah, and it seems perfectly acceptable to everyone involved. I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at it in this with 2017 eyes, so who knows? Yeah. Let's just allow the campness to go by and not judge it with our PC modern era. <laughs> yeah. I think those times you just accept that that's, that's how it was. Absolutely. The, uh, the selling of the head by Dynamite Kid allows Haku to hit him with his super kick for a three count, eliminating the British Bulldogs. 
good, nice little finish. I wasn't expecting a super kick, but uh, that's because I don't know. Again, my knowledge of this is pretty limited. Uh, I kind of expected another finish. I was like, ooh, super kick, nice. Dino Bravo comes in and hits an inverted atomic drop on Jim Powers. Um, Johnny Valiant on the outside, um, who was the manager of Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine, is starting to look a little bit like Chopper Reed here at this point. And if you don't know who that is, definitely do a Google search and have a look. Uh, wasn't he played in a film by, oh God, Eric Banner? Absolutely. Is that the film I'm thinking of? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Chopper. Very famous. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Famous um, Australian criminal. So, uh, but yeah, if you've not seen the movie Chopper, definitely come watch it. It's brilliant. Australian criminal. There's an easy joke I'm not going to make there. That's okay. I, I, I moved over here of my own free will, so that's fine. <laughs> Really? Well, no, actually, no, actually not. I um, I was drag kicking and screaming, asking if we could wait three more weeks until SummerSlam '91 had been on. Well, I mean, you've got to have your priorities if you move in country. Yeah, apparently, my mum didn't agree, so never forgiven her. There you go. <laughs> um, Jim Powers is starting to then be booked like John Cena here because the heels all take turns beating on him, and he just never gives up. Fights back, kicks out of everything. It was crazy. Um, we get Dino Bravo hitting his patented side suplex, which had finished many a superstar in the day. Valentine comes in as well and works him over, and we just can't get rid of him. No, he was full John Cena. I was waiting for a five-knuckle shuffle and then a, an attitude adjustment. Now, what I don't understand is, why do they still call it the five-knuckle shuffle, but they changed the FU to attitude adjustment because it was not PC enough? It doesn't make any sense. I think because so many people don't actually know what five knuckle shuffle means. I mean, I can't say I've ever used a term in anything other than describing wrestling. Have you? No, uh, yeah, you're probably right. I'm probably reading too much into it. <laughs> I mean, I know what it's meant to mean, but I can't. Th- I just can't imagine anyone ever using it for that that form. Well, I know Vince. He probably only got a complaint about one, so he only changed one. Yeah, that's probably as simple as that. We then, but you are allowed to still use the STFU. Do they just call that the STF now, though, don't they? Do they? Yeah, th- no, I think so. I miss that as well. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they just well, call it the STF. This is my knowledge of John Cena being wrong, signing it. <laughs> I am. Um, I don't know. Like, probably we'll have to get into John Cena at some point on the show, but I just don't. I've never had the hatred for him that I that I have for Roman, and that many have had for Cena in the past. Uh, no, I, I don't mind him. I just think at times they book him wrong and it, it does make him look superstar. But I think his wrestling is he's actually he's got better as he's got older. Yeah, I agree. And something that I do hate, though, is the next fall with Paul Roma coming off the top with a sunset flip to eliminate the Dream Team. I hate the top rope sunset flip. I alluded to it earlier in the, in the Ronnie Garvin match on Starcade, but it's such a stupid move. You are jumping off the top rope and landing on your back. It's... If you the impact is actually the same as Ric Flair being thrown off the top rope, and yet you get the pin from it. Yeah, it makes no sense. It's another one of wrestling's oddities. It sure is. The Killer Bees then come into the match and they double team over the Anvil for a while, getting a few two counts in the in the meantime. And we've got um, uh, Bobby Heenan on the outside begging the heels to finish the job and get rid of the Bees. We get lots of moves, lots of tags. Roma comes off the second rope with a fist drop for a two count. Um, we get. A back suplex here for a two count. Haku hits a drop kick, and Gorilla Monsoon says, I'd like to see the Anvil do that. So immediately Anvil tags in and hits a drop kick, making him look like an absolute fool. He uh, he wasn't expecting that. It's almost as if uh, Anvil could hear the commentary. <laughs> it's just perfect timing. 
Um, we then get one of the killer bees rolls through a crossbody to pick up a three count, eliminating the heart foundation. And then Haku comes in, hits a shoulder breaker for a two count, and then puts on the dreaded nerve hold. The action's actually pretty quick here, though, so it can be forgiven pretty easily. Uh, and the killer bees manage to get their masks on, allowing the illegal man to hit a sunset flip for a three count. And two face teams cheat one heel team out of the victory in a very, very weird way to finish a match. What did you think about that? I, I was just like, I have no idea what's occurred there. Because they put the masks on, and you think, well, that's a heel move. Are, the, are they heels in hiding on the face team? And no, they're, they're celebrating like faces. And I thought, this is probably, again, my lack of knowledge of the time, but it seemed really odd booking. I know you've got to keep the Islanders strong, but they sort of like book them to lose that way against faces doing a heel move against two teams of faces. It seemed a very odd finish to me this um whole killer bees put the mask on thing they this is something they did a lot back in this time period it was like their own version of twin magic because you couldn't tell them apart but the one thing i always thought watching this is if you've got time to both go and put a set of masks on why don't you just tag yeah yeah it's like <laughs> what why are you making life more difficult for yourself you've got to find a mask put it on your head the other guy could be getting beaten down or pinned while you're doing that just, just don't do it or come out with your masks on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, but... And also, if, if that's all it takes, why don't all tag teams wear masks? Well, I don't think a mask would help you tell the difference between the Anvil and Brett. Well, I guess the, uh, the, the two killer bees are slightly more the same body shape, but I think you could probably tell them apart. But I think if you... Um, I don't know if you... Have you ever seen SummerSlam 90? Probably not. Um, there's a there's a match on there. It's Demolition up against the Heart Foundation. It's best two out of three falls for the tag titles. And this is in the stage where they just brought in Crush to Demolition. So it was actually <coughs> before Axe had departed and they were a three-man team for a brief period. And Demolition spend the entire match swapping one guy out from under the apron with one of the other two. And the referee obviously never picks up on it, despite the fact that Axe, Smash, and Crush have got very clearly different bodies and different face paint yeah it's there's a certain level of believability and they've crossed the line even in their own continuity there i mean i know nobody likes to read too much into the rules of wrestling but if you've got a three-man team like demolition you'd think the first thing the referee would be doing would be like yep there's brett and jim okay here axe and crush ding 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 let's go 10 minutes later hang on a minute how is smash tagged into this match no that's not gonna happen fuck off (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 you're not going to not notice three differing men looking entirely different. We then go to a Ted DiBiase promo in a limousine, and he's basically running through his best hits so far in the WWF, which consists of paying members of the audience to do things to belittle them um, and not paying them quite often as well. Some really good stuff. All the old DiBiase favorites that you'll probably remember, things like, um, getting RVD, a very young RVD to kiss his feet for money, which was pretty funny. Um, also, the, the we've get actually I think we come back to these a few times through the night. But the other ones involve getting the kid to try and dribble the basketball, kicking it away on the tenth try so that he can't pay him and things like that. Um, this is all basically done. I'm pretty sure because there's an intermission in the building, so everybody's going to the hot dog stand, getting a beer, taking a leak, whatever. Because when we come back, it's just the commentators recapping everything that's happened so far, and this does go for a, a good ten minutes or so, breaking up the show. I mean, I'm known about filling out, especially between like taking the stupid purple tape off and on the ropes for the cruiserweight matches at pay-per-views. What a waste of time. Uh, but 
at least they use they usually uh, have packages that are going to build up the maps. This was just let's hear some stuff. This is what's happened. Yeah, just nothing really, was it? But nah, I I thought like knowing what I know now. Um, it, it's obvious that they've gone to an intermission, but I thought they did manage to disguise it pretty well because if you're at home, you're just seeing a D- Ted DiBiase sort of series of stuff that you might not have seen before, so you wouldn't actually know that's why they were doing it. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, it's it's a good... They're, they're not bad packages. They just seem oddly timed just there, but, you know, if you're going to put an intermission in, nowadays they just accept that people are just going to go get beer when, I don't know, it used to be when Ryback was wrestling, but he's long gone. Yeah, or back before women's wrestling became somewhat decent. Same thing there when the women came on. That was when it was time to go. Yeah, when they were filling a paddling pool up with gravy, that was the time to go get a, get a, get a beer. Oh, most def. When we come back, uh, we've got Andre. Um, we're told that he's not actually been in a match since WrestleMania, which I find very odd. Oh, we've got Honky Tonk Man, sorry, comes out and cuts a promo on the stage. Uh, he and Jimmy Hart. Basically, just tearing down all the baby faces and saying how smart he was for walking out on the match earlier. And then we get... Yeah, reinforce that. It's good. I like continuity. I like to keep going back to do this. Jesse's just amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We then get the introduction for the heel teams for the main event, which is Ravishing Rick Rude, King Kong Bundy, the One Man Gang, the Natural Butch Reed, and Andre the Giant, which is quite the impressive team. Yeah, that's a massive team. Between the intros for the heels and the face, we get a face team promo, which I'll splice in for us. Um, the face team, of course, being um, Paul Orndorff, Ken Patera, The Rock Don Morocco, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Hulk Hogan. So another pretty impressive unit here. insurance policy you live you die you survive but i tell you what i've done everything i could to cover my back man oh you got me look at them man look how hungry they are the natural food chain here doesn't matter man the larger animals like andre the giant it doesn't matter when they're this hungry an animal like ken patera or mr wonderful could eat them alive but I'll tell you something, man. I got my policy covered, brother. I've got the magnificent one, the deep, dark past. Do what he has to do to get us through this thing. I've got the strongest in the world. I've got the fire, brother, just in case we have to burn the whole jungle down. I'll do it with a fire. But I've got the most unpredictable animal of all right behind me. Ask them how hungry they are. How hungry do they look to you? I'm hungry, and I'm here to survive. The strongest shall survive. What about it? The Rock, Don Morocco. Oh, the training's over. I'm here for a good time. And a good time. Humperdinck. Talking to Solomon said it's time to get in and do it right now. Bam, bam, bam. Time to burn the building down, man. These guys are absolutely psyched to the max. They're Captain Heavyweight Champion. Come on, Oh, they've put a massive team together. This is there's no denying this is the main event. One hundred percent, yeah. And just the the star power and the size. I don't I'm not sure what's more impressive here. Oh, it's definitely a Roydolf. <laughs> 
And um, when we come back, we get started. It's a really good pop for the faces as well, by the way, particularly Bam Bam, which was surprising. So um, just cool stuff all around. Yeah, I, I think uh, Bam Bam gets sticks stands out so much. I think he just attracts your attention as opposed to... I mean, once you've seen one big guy that's worked out, you, you kind of, they all merge into one in the background, whereas Bam Bam, he, he sticks out. You you can identify to him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we do get started, it is The Rock Don Morocco and Ravishing Recruit getting us underway with a really good back and forth uh, before Mr. Wonderful comes in and hits a knee lift. And then we get Hogan coming in who hits an elbow, uh, three elbows, sorry, as my computer begins to make noises. Sorry, bear with me a sec while I fix this. All sorts of technical difficulties tonight. So we've got Bam Bam comes into the match and hits a big splash, followed by a press slam, which the crowd really loved. That was a pretty cool spot. And we get Ken Patera and Butch Reed coming in. We get Patera with a couple of slams for a two count before bringing in the Rock Don Morocco, who hits a drop kick. Mr. Wonderful comes in and hits a drop kick. And then we get a Hogan and Mr. Wonderful double clothesline, followed by a leg drop to eliminate the natural Butch Reed very quickly. Yep, get, get one out in the first place. Keep it exciting. Although they've done it for four matches now, so it's almost expected. But it was a good start. I, I was a bit scared at this point that Hulk Hogan would do all of the eliminating, but uh, and he was going to get my dick move of the week. But actually, I don't think he does, so I'll let him off. Fair enough, then. We then get a moment that has been forever in, etched in my mind from 80s wrestling, and that's where Hogan is celebrating with the faces of the elimination of Butch Reed and... Andre comes into the match, and as Hogan's high-fiving all the faces, the referee informs Hogan that the high-five to Kempatera counts as a legal tag, and Kempatera has to come in. And this, the commentators are just selling that he's got to come in and face the giant Andre, which just made him look like an absolute monster. Yeah, yeah nobody wanted to face him. We, it doesn't last too long, though, before Andre tags back out and King Kong Bundy comes in. Jesse says that... Um, the, Joey Morella saved Hulk Hogan there from Andre because he made him get out the ring and starts to work, uh, give Gorilla a bit of a hard time about him, as we talked about earlier. With, yeah, yeah, he's definitely really going for him in this one. We then get One Man Gang and Mr. Wonderful in before Rick Rude comes in, who eats a clothesline, and then a wicked slam followed by an L drop, elbow drop Sorry for a two count. The Rock comes in and hits a clothesline. One Man Gang comes in, as does Patera, and hits a crossbody for a two count before the heels begin working over Ken Patera. We then... Isn't Ken Patera the ex-jailbird? He is indeed. <laughs> um, that's a brilliant story as well. If you've, not, if you've not heard the story of Ken Patera, definitely go and look that one up. We then get a big Andre Sucks chant for the crowd, which is... I don't remember the crowds being this vicious back in the day. I, something I never really took notice of. But yeah, Andre's got nuclear heel heat here. At least the crowd are uh, actually healing on the right character. Well, the right wrestler, not just healing on like someone they don't like. Definitely. One Man Gang comes in and almost kills Ken Patera with sort of an STO type move for a three count, getting rid of him. So he's gone. Hogan comes in and gets all over the one-man gang before Bam Bam comes in to one of the biggest pops of the night with Hogan tagging out for Bam Bam, which is just crazy to me. Yeah, uh, you know Hogan took note of that and went, mm, I heard that, I'll, uh, I'll put that in my, my little book to make sure I deal with this uh, interloper. Yeah, he won't be here much longer. <laughs> 
Well, doesn't he leave because uh, at this time, and I think he admits it, he had a pretty bad attitude. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, we get a head clash here before Mr. Wonderful and Rick Rude come back into the match. Um, Wonderful hits a vertical suplex followed by a big backdrop. And then Bundy comes in and nail, uh, nails Mr. Wonderful, who's attempting the pile driver on Rude, allowing Rude to roll him up and pick up the one, two, three, getting rid of Paul Orndorff. Nice bit of heel working together. Absolutely. Bam Bam comes in and hits a suplex. And then we get Hulk Hogan coming in with a high knee. And The Rock comes in and hits a power slam for the one, two, three, and a bit of a surprise eliminating Ravishing Rick Rude. I thought he went out a bit early. I thought he'd, he'd be one of the later ones, but uh, again, keeps it uh, keeps it fresh, I guess. Maybe Rick wanted to go to the back and just chill out. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, we then we're down to three v three. In comes King Kong Bundy, and the Rock Don Morocco begins to work on his leg. One Man Gang comes in and falls on top of the Rock on a slam attempt, getting a two count. Andre then comes in and nails him. And we get the one-man gang hitting the 747 splash for the three-count, getting rid of Morocco. Yeah, uh, in another nice, quick passage of, of wrestling. I've got to admit, I, I was expecting a lot, not not this quality. I, I think sometimes they make up for it just with energy, even if they're not doing anything particularly exciting or have time to. And I just thought there was a lot of energy in this match. If you look at the size of the competitors in this one, you would think this would be the slowest match, but the numbers of the number of people involved allows them to go at a quick pace. And this really helps the match. Yeah, they can, they can come in. They don't get too gassed, go out, catch the breath. It really, really keeps it exciting. It, it makes me long for Survivor Series being proper. Absolutely. This then puts us down to Bam Bam Bigelow and Hulk Hogan as the two left on the face team. So a bit of an uphill battle for them here. Um, Bam comes in and Bundy hits him with a big clothesline, but Hogan saves him on the pin count. We then get a knee lift, followed by the heels taking turns beating up Bam Bam Bigelow as the crowd are absolutely rabid for him to make that hot tag to Hulk Hogan. You, you can't argue with the fact that Hogan was massive. I mean, it's not something that history has re, really uh, rewritten. It really was that big a pop for Hogan for a lot of years. He's probably, he was probably bigger than a lot of people think he was, to be honest. Like, you know, it's I would say it's almost been lost a little bit how huge Hogan was here. I, I think he loses it a lot because not only has wrestling been rewritten, He's hung around a little bit. I mean, he's getting massive pops in 2003 when he comes out. But I think it's diminishing returns. And you kind of forget how special he was. It's like you remember Austin being white hot for three years. But then that's it. You, you, what do you get him every couple of years when they drag him out? So Austin feels bigger because he was around less time to ruin it, I think, for me. I think, yeah, and Austin never really got that reputation that Hogan got for pulling all the power plays. Fairly or unfairly, because Austin did walk out a couple of times, but I think Hogan managed to manipulate the situation for so long that people did get tired of him, and he sort of refused to admit defeat in his babyface run for probably a little bit too long as well. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost akin to the, the Cena-Superman run where he just... He, they did him no favours with it, but I think they realised a bit sooner, and therefore Cena will probably go down probably more favorably than Hogan, even though Hogan is at this point, he's massive. He's, you can't, he's running the company basically for, for heat. Yeah, absolutely. For pops. We'll get a really good story here with the heels working over Bam Bam. It's mostly Bundy and the gang taking turns, tagging in and out, beating him down before finally Andre comes in, 
but he manages to do a Bam Bam that is a bit of a commando role underneath a strike by Andre and gets the hot tag to Hogan, which is really cool. Like As Hogan is tagged, the entire crowd are on their feet, which is just an awesome visual as well as great sound. Yeah, it, it, you can't, it's just amazing to see and to think that that's how people felt at that point is, 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 is the difference between this and anything on the Starcade match. That, that is Hogan. You can't fight that. And for any of the newer fans that weren't watching in the 80s, you've got to consider the fact that as well as not having stars face stars on TV, this is before SummerSlam was a pay-per-view. So this is WrestleMania in March, April, all the way through to Survivor Series on Thanksgiving night in November. So the 26th of November. This is the first time you've seen these guys lock up in, what's that, seven or eight months? Yeah, unless you've been to a house show, and I don't think they were probably doing big things on house shows then. No, so this is just an incredible period of time to wait with with no interaction televised between these two. It's just unbelievable, and you get the the results are there for everyone to see with the payoff. Yeah, I mean, is it exciting to see somebody take someone on a pay-per-view after you've seen them take them on the week before? Yep, it's will take I mean if this was today Bam Bam and Hogan would have faced Andre and Bundy the, the week before on Raw yeah definitely and they probably would have given away the end of the match by whoever got the pinfall assuming they just didn't go to a DQ correct um, from there we've got Andre and Hogan aren't really into it for too long before Hogan hits the ropes and Bundy trips him from the outside. This causes Hulk Hogan to go to the outside and chase after him, hitting him with a slam on the floor, as well as the one-man gang hitting him with a slam on the floor. But while this is happening, the referee counts out Hulk Hogan to a huge heat from the crowd, and he gets in and argues with, with the referee, but the referee's having none of it, so then he storms out like the super baby face that he is. He, had, he didn't have to change his act much to be a heel. Even his wrestling, his eye pokes, back rakes, even when he's a face. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're down to Bam Bam Bigelow up against the one-man gang, King Kong Bundy and Andre the Giant. And that is a hell of a ending for anyone to face. I was going to say, if anything was going to give Bam Bam a big head and a bad attitude, is this kind of a push. Yeah, absolutely. He comes back in the match and hits a clothesline, followed by an elbow drop for a two-count, a headbutt for a two-count, and then staggers King Kong Bundy with a drop kick. But... Gets whipped into the corner, misses the avalanche, and Bam Bam hits a sling slingshot splash from the apron in for a three count, getting rid of King Kong Bundy, which was pretty impressive. Oh, Bam Bam, uh, as size does not uh, indicate what moves he can and can't do because his agility, for, for especially even in like the late 80s, is, is amazing when they're being told to stay on their feet and basically wrestle the big man style. Yeah, Bam Bam was very impressive. Something completely different, you know, especially in comparison to like Bundy and the gang and, and people like that. Up until we did uh, the last pay-per-view, I think, I didn't realise he was around so soon. I've had to go back and read up a little bit because I just assumed he was like mid the start of the 90s in the WWF and then ECW and then that final run in WCW. I mean, I'd heard the name, but I didn't realise 87 was sort of like he was there. Yeah, doing that gimmick as well. It's not like he, he's sort of like ravened himself into the Bam Bam gimmick. No, no, he's definitely dates a lot back. I mean, it's not a long run this period of time. He's there for less than a year, but it's definitely a glimpse as to what he could have been. And imagine if his attitude had been good and he'd stuck around. You could say, yeah, maybe Hogan would have ruined him, but he was certainly white hot at this period. Well, I mean, there was always space. As long as you knew you were under Hogan, there was plenty of money to be made. I think it was just... If he felt you were 
getting a little bit too close to his, his, his championship. I mean, we rip on Hogan a lot, but you don't get to the top in wrestling if you don't play a few games. It's not like he wasn't doing anything that hadn't been done to him probably when he started. Yep, you're probably right there. So from here, we've got one man gang comes in and hits a clothesline for a two count. He throws uh, Bam Bam into Andre's boot. Then he goes up top but misses a splash, which looks like shit. He does the whole land on your feet, then fall thing. Um, but it does allow Bam Bam to pick up the three and get rid of the one-man gang. So he's eliminated two big boys, and it's now Bam Bam and Andre left in the match. I hate that. Ooh, I'm not going to hit them. I'll land on my feet splash thing. It's like, well, what were you going to do if they hadn't moved? Just fall onto them, which really defeats the purpose of going up top. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's wrestling logic. Andre then comes in, and it's 1v1 left in the contest. He hits some headbutts on Bam Bam, and then as he goes to attack, Bam Bam does three commando rolls to avoid him like he did earlier, but you can tell Bam Bam's blown up here as the rolls are pretty slow and nowhere near as impressive as they were earlier in the match. Yeah, we've been in for like a good six minutes uh, wrestling against three big guys doing a lot of work. I'm not surprised he's uh, not feeling the strain and, and everything he did before. Yeah, absolutely. He then misses a charge to the corner on Andre pretty poorly. It's not a good-looking spot. And then Andre gets a hold of him and hits him with a, a bit of an awkward butterfly suplex, but this allows him to pick up the three count and take the victory. So Andre comes out of this looking strong, allowing him to get some credibility back continuing his program with Hulk Hogan. But right on cue, Hulk Hogan comes out Nails Andre with the belt a couple of times, and Bam Bam and his manager, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, basically scurry to the back trying to avoid the camera while Hulk Hogan eggs the crowd on and dares Andre and Bobby Heenan to come back in. Bobby Heenan stops Andre coming in, motioning that he'll come in and saying that he'll come in when Hogan signs a title match for Andre, keeps Andre away, and as Bruce Pritchard would say, Hogan must pose to end the show. Yeah, yeah, I honestly don't know how he gets away with this if anyone should be getting the crowd it should be Andre to Ryland and if not then it should be Bam Bam as the plucky hero but somehow Hogan gets counted out and there he is at the end of the show like you say doing his pose I mean this they really could have built this I mean I know the match has still has steam has legs but imagine if Andre had beaten Bam Bam so viciously and Hogan just came out to protect him and either Andre nailed Hogan or they just had a bit of a you know, stare down. It would have just built anticipation and drama, but instead Hogan comes out and wipes the floor with him. Yeah, well, he comes out, it's like, it's another heel move. He comes out and blindsides him with the belt. It's like, well, how does that make you the, the plucky face in all of this? Does this take your dick move of the week? Uh, I was trying not to give it Hogan again, but I think I might be three for three. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. It's just... Yeah, it's Hogan, isn't it? I mean, you've got to go into these shows expecting it. I feel like sometimes on, on this podcast, I'm too soft on the WWF and maybe too hard on WCW, but Hogan's definitely the exception to that rule because oh, I just couldn't tolerate it. No, it's not like he's, like I don't know, six foot and 220 pounds, and he's going up against Andre, so he needs a weapon. The man's six seven or whatever at this point, and... Whatever his wrestling weight is in comparison to his actual weight, he's not small. No. He's, he's 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 a unit, and he doesn't he shouldn't need a weapon against Andre the Giant. Absolutely. We then go backstage with Gene Oakland, who's got Bobby Heenan and Andre, and Andre says that he wants a title match from Hogan. 
before throwing back to the commentators who bid us farewell and we see some still shots from the pay-per-view as the card winds down. So that'll do it for Survivor Series. What were your thoughts on the show overall? I really enjoyed Survivor Series. Uh, probably more unexpected just because the idea of four matches in three hours, you know, running time, was like this could be a bit of a slog. But I thought all four matches... We're entertaining. Uh, a lot like to go back to the uh, Ric Flair Sting match from the last one. I wasn't, ex- I was expecting that to be a slot, but every one of those matches was reasonable length, but actually kept me entertained all the way through. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good stuff. I mean, Survivor Series was traditionally one of my favourite pay-per-views. The Rumble holds that spot in my heart these days, but I always loved Survivor Series as a kid. And I think if they just brought back this format and just kept it, it stops them running through their money matches which they're doing with greater pace than ever before with all the number of pay-per-views they've got these days and the guys uh also could do with a break what's you know they could just give them a it's, it's a bit of a night off for some of them you can five on five you, you do very little wrestling you can build it up you can have either the oddball teams or the the heel face mixed teams you've got You've got time. You've got so much content on TV. You could build the building of the Survivor Series teams from like three months out. You've, you've got something probably easier to build the teams. And back then when it was like, right, this is a pay-per-view, we just have a bit of TV. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just something different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, done well. The matches are really good to watch. I think the problem that Survivor Series suffered before they kind of canned it was it was five kind of pointless people having a match against five other people they didn't have feuds with, so they couldn't do mini stories in the match. And it was just like, oh, well, we've got to do a Survivor Series match because it's Survivor Series. Yeah, it's just it's it's it just lost its luster by them not backing it as a, as a concept. But I was quite lucky, actually, when I went to Survivor Series in 2014 that the main event was a traditional Survivor Series match, and I loved it. That's what you need. I mean, I think they, they killed it for me when I think they had bragging rights which had a 10-man tag, I think, like, the month or two before Survivor Series, and it was basically the same concept, if I remember right, Raw versus SmackDown. I wasn't watching wrestling in that periods, but I've heard the same thing, that they pretty much killed it by having the, the multi-man tag match the month before, which made no sense. No, no, I don't think it was at a time when it was, oh, we've got SmackDown versus Raw, we must immediately have them hating each other for no apparent reason. Yep. All right, well, let's go to the, the rundown and pick ourselves a winner then. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Just cut all of that. Um, who did you have on the night for production value? WWF, without doubt, 100%. There, there is, this is the point where uh, the WWF have done a few uh, events They've taken lots of inf- uh, information from uh, the guy from NBC, whose name I've forgotten. Uh, Dick Ebersole, isn't it? The money they've, yeah, that's it, yeah. They've taken the money, they've invested it back into whatever they needed to make their product look professional, uh, exciting, and to fit kind of their vision of wrestling at the time, which is kind of, you know, it's the more cartoon end. And although, all right, they haven't got a Titan Tron because they don't exist. You know, they don't have a fancy uh, endings, ending. They don't mix it at the end. You know, like they do at the end of WrestleMania. They haven't got a montage and a thing because, let's face it, it's impossible to do at the time. But everything that they can do to make that look modern works. And I don't think I caught any flubs. Uh, I think there might have been one or two, but 
overall, considering they've only been doing it for like a couple of years, this is night and day better than uh, uh, Jim Crockett. There are flubs. There's there's the bit in the main event where they call out the time limit, and then uh, Tony Schiavone has to go, "Yeah, there's no time limit." <laughs> um, yeah, I can't really add much other other than to say the other big difference there is the lighting of the crowd and how much brighter it looks at Survivor Series compared to Starcade. I don't think it does it any favours. Starcade looks, for want of a better word, cheap and rough. And if you compare that to the WWF product, which, let's face it, it gets better, it just automatically looks better. It's that, that theory that even if the content is better... The, produ- the, the production and what you see first off has a, a massive impact on which one you're going to go with first. You might be wrong and decide that the other product that looks worse is better, but on first view, you're going to go WWS looks better. Absolutely. What about storylines? Who did you go with here? Again, I went WWF. I thought that uh, the storylines weren't very well described on Starcade whatsoever. And I think that they didn't really make a big deal about how this was two companies coming together. And how it was people fighting people from another team, uh, well, another another company. Uh, and they didn't really set up any of the feuds. I, I, without, I think a pay-per-view you should be able to watch without watching the content in between and at least get an idea. All right, you've missed the content, that was in between the, the, the pay-per-views, but you should be able to watch a match. I have little to no idea what was going on in any of those matches. And I've got to think... Except that these two were fighting. I've got to think, if you were around in the 80s and got this on pay-per-view, say you were in, let's just say, North Carolina, would you know who the UWF were for them to be defending their titles? I mean, feel if, if they were all over TV beforehand, please let me know on Twitter or whatever. But... Yeah, I, I agree. You couldn't really tell what was going on. And the other big thing for WWF was the one-night stories, the honky-tonk man running out on three challenges, Andre, you know, getting working over Bam Bam, the Bam Bam fighting from behind, um, Hogan and Andre continuing on. There was a lot of stuff self-contained on the night, some of it even, but made for a good story. Uh, the Jumping Bomb Angels and the Glamour Girls is another one. Just a lot of good stuff on Survivor Series. Yeah, you felt like you weren't watching what felt like an advert for a house show. Mm. Now, as for characters, which way did you go there? Again, I've got to go WWF. I just... I didn't... I, there wasn't anything on the WCW card that really... They all kind of merge into NWA wrestler. I'm probably insulting the NWA or people who like that wrestling. It's not intentional, but... They just, for me, start to blur into one character. Uh, you know, slightly slightly dodges the gym, drinks beer, does some punching. And it's like watching the pay-per-view where they're all the revival. And I love the revival. But that's, to me, they don't seem to pop out. You know, besides Ric Flair and Dusty and, and the Legion of Doobie, even then I think they could have been better, better done. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas... Whereas just the characters on show, just on Survivor Series, it's like there's something for everyone. And Jake, Ricky Steamboat, and Randy Savage all on the opening team match. That was just, you know, that's star power, isn't it? Yeah, that's just like these three not only are top stars vying for what is a very important belt, they all can go. And 
I guess the other thing is with with characters is you get it's only it's only one, but Ted DiBiase, you get some explanation, some backstory behind his character, and that's building for another star coming in on top of what's already a loaded roster. Starcade doesn't build anyone. It, you know, even the guys that give interviews that aren't in matches, they're just thrown out there without any explanation as to why they're important. Well, they're either talking about uh, uh, the match later on, or Dusty, or they're kind of just wobbling on for a couple of minutes, not really doing themselves any favours, let alone the product. Now, this should probably be the easiest pick of the night, but who did you go for for crowd heat? Oh, WWF. I mean, that crowd's... I mean, besides the uh, always screaming crowds of uh, women for the Rock and Roll Express, which I will never understand, I just thought the crowd were more into it at Survivor Series. It wasn't even size uh, the size of the crowd. I just think the Survivor Series crowd was more into it. Absolutely. And they did the right things. They popped for the faces, they booed the heels, and they stayed with the match with the matches the whole way through. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't chanting. I, don't know, I think this is a problem. I'm, I'm not going to get on the whole crowds nowadays. Uh, there's plenty of uh, ex-wrestlers doing podcasts about it. But I just I just think that uh, like Ronnie Garvin was getting completely the wrong... Uh, the wrong f- feedback from the crowd. I just think that the, the, I think that's a booking problem, not 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 necessarily a crowd problem at times. So yeah, the crowd. WWF. We talked earlier about the um, the right moment to pull the trigger and keeping the chase alive with not giving the LOD the belt. I want to know why any booker in the world thought it was the right moment to pull the trigger on Ronnie Carvin with the title. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it was a strange negotiation path to get the title belt. On, on anyone uh, in the NWA. And again, I, I think this is, I mean, I'm no wrestling historian. If I was, we wouldn't be doing 1980s wrestling, but it just seems to me that this is the problem that when you're taking on the WWF with one man in charge, he can just say, right, I'm putting the belt on him. And he doesn't have to discuss it with anyone. People can advise him, but if he wants to put the belt on one man gang, he can do. That would... Whereas NWA, they probably had a vote and he won by one vote. Yeah. Now, the last category, match quality, who did you go with? Again, WWF. As did I, making this a complete whitewash. Um, it, it was a good card, though, wasn't it? It was, it was very low on matches. What was it, four matches? But they were all decent. Yeah. Oh, no, one of them was boring. I mean, I think I watched the Starcade in about five slots, and I didn't want to put it on. Whereas I watched... Uh, Survivor Series, I went match to match, which is actually quite a lot of wrestling when you're not watching it live, because we don't we don't watch things live anymore, no. except like WrestleMania. So to actually sit and sit through and go, I'm actually looking forward to the next match. It was almost like binge watching wrestling, which isn't something you often do. No, I, I was Starcade was a slog for me, and the matches were much shorter. Survivor Series, I think I said to you, I, I struggled to get it watched because I had to know that I had an hour spare before I sat down at the minimum and I didn't always have that but when I actually started it I just plowed through it whereas Starcade there were shorter matches but I was it was a bit of a slog so I mean this is it's no wonder this is a whitewash because I came away from the two shows I came away from Survivor Series with a feeling of happy nostalgia and getting to relive some of my childhood I came away from Starcade thinking thank fuck I wasn't a WCW fan yeah that it's it's a bad example of what they could do, I reckon. Absolutely. 
So that's it. WWF takes the night. Uh, November 1987 belonged to Vince and, you know, in more ways than one, the politics, the power play, as well as the wrestling product, interestingly enough. So that's a wrap for this episode. What did you, um, anything you want to say to people before we check out any, anything you've got coming up or. Well, besides my long, uh, my already mentioned addiction to Minecraft, if anyone wants to talk wrestling, I'm always on, on the Twitter. It seems to be my standard uh, sign out. Other than that, uh, I don't really generate much content. <laughs> Just keep coming on here. Um, oh, one thing I do want to say, actually, for us before we sign out, is you and I had these um, the, the two shows to finish the trilogy. I did the first one on my own before um, I, I was getting anyone involved earlier. But we decided to do the next two in this series together as sort of our lead into 80s wrestling. If anyone's got any show ideas, particularly anything that's not on the network and you can send us links to, let us know because I think... I, I think I'm speaking for both of us where I say we're a little bit open for suggestions for the next path we take through the 80s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued with watching the territories. I know it's a bit of a car crash because you know you're watching it come to an end. But I'm just inter- I'm interested to see, could they have, what could they have done differently or would the WWF always have won? Was there a point where they could have actually stopped them in their tracks but but did something so monumentally stupid that I don't have never seen that I should do as a wrestling fan. I think our next stop should maybe be um, just from the things I've been looking ahead to is a clash of the champions and a Saturday night's main event from the same month and see how those two shows compared against each other, but definitely open for suggestions on this as well. Yeah. Other than that, I'm going to, at some point catch up with Carl for us to do the February pay-per-views in 96 so we can get the road to WrestleMania but we've had a few scheduling conflicts he's been busy I've been busy and we've just not managed to be in the same well at a, not the same place obviously because we're on opposite sides of the world but we've not been able to sit down at the same time so that's coming up and Duncan and I will be back into TNA again very shortly other than that please do um follow us on twitter on facebook uh on instagram now as well it's mostly just my wrestling figure action shots but if you're a nerd like me and want to get involved please do so and give us a five star review on itunes because it always helps other than that there's not a lot else going on for me um just try we'll get this show out probably sometime this week not that it'll make any difference to anyone listening because it'll be out when you hear this but other than that everything is pretty much business as usual so thank you all for listening Yesterday we used to rock the show I laced the track, you locked the flow So far from hanging on the block the dough Notorious, they got to know that Life ain't always what it seemed to be Words can't express what you mean to me Even though you're gone, we still a team Through your family, I fulfill your dreams In the future, can't wait to see If you open up the gates for me Reminisce sometime, the night they took my friend Try to black it out, but it plays again when it's real, feelings hard to conceal Can't imagine all the pain I feel Give anything to hear half your breath I know you're still living your life after death
watching us while we pray for you Every day we pray for you Till the day we meet again In my heart is where I keep you, friend Memories give me the strength I need to proceed Strength I need to believe My thoughts big I just can't define Wish I could turn back the hands of time Us in the six Shopping new clothes and kicks You and me taking flicks Making hits Stages they receive you on Still can't believe you're gonna Give anything to hear half your breath I know you're still living your life after death Passes.